Hello, hello, everybody. Stefan Mullen, you from Freedom Made Radio. Hope you're doing well. Great questions tonight. Um, number one, this was a Marxist socialist uh, calling in who was saying that, uh, isn't it a violation of the non-aggression principle for this owning class to have all these factories and force everyone to work in them and strip them of the value of their labor and so on? And uh, yeah, we had, I, I take that stuff kind of personally as an entrepreneur myself. So we had a good back and forth about that, which threatened to become, well, you'll see. Second question. He said, in my current view, I think our society would be better off with a lot more spanking. And uh, he's not talking about the fun kind. And so he was curious as to why I think spanking is uh, bad. And uh, he says, we shouldn't shelter kids, the harshness of reality and so on. I really didn't get a chance to finish that conversation for reasons that will become clear as you listen to the conversation. Uh, number three, artificial intelligence. Uh, is there a sentient entity more powerful than human beings the way that lab mice look at people? Would we not look at such a being with awe and incomprehension and so on? And we talked about uh, the possibility of life in other worlds, how they're going to come and visit us, and uh, whether our toasters are going to strangle us uh, by dawn. And it was a good conversation. And uh, if you're a big fan of artificial intelligence and its dangers, you'll want to check that one out. So it was a really, really great show and touched on a lot of issues that we uh, talk about here. So I hope that you'll really enjoy it. FreeDomainRadio.com slash donate to help us out as always. And uh, FDRURL.com slash Amazon if you're going shopping. Thanks again. Here we go. All right. Well, up first is Kevin. Kevin wrote in and said, you assert that the redistribution of wealth and or transfer of property rights from the bourgeois owning class to the proletariat, the working class, necessarily uses forces in violation of the non-aggression principle. But doesn't the exploitation of labor by the owner do much of the same thing, or at a minimum have the same effect? Could one claim that the working class expropriation of the means of production be considered self-defense under the non-aggression principle? That's from Kevin. Hello, Kevin. How are you doing tonight? I'm doing great, Steph. How are you doing? Uh, I'm doing well, thank you. I'm doing well. Exploitation. 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 Let's start off with some defy, defy definitions. And uh, what's your take and swing at the word exploitation? How would you define it? Well, I mean, uh, in terms of economically, uh, exploitation is the extraction of value based off of the labor of someone else. Uh, you know, the sort of standard Marxist view is that uh, if you look at the relationship between an owner and a worker, the owner, uh, the worker actually uses their labor power uh, in order to produce uh, a certain commodity or a certain number of commodities, the value of which the, of the owner then uh, in the marketplace actually charges a higher value than what they paid for it. And uh, that difference, obviously what we usually call profit, is basically a measure of the taking by the owner of the uh, surplus value that the laborer has created. And that is what I would say is the is the best definition of exploitation. Okay, so basically it's extracting value from the labor of others. Right. Now, during this conversation, do you anticipate that I will be expending uh, labor? Um, not, not necessarily. I mean, I, I guess not physical labor, not necessarily productive labor. What do you mean not physical labor? Is I mean, my mouth kind of, not moving? I guess, I guess technically, yes, your mouth moves. But I mean, in terms of... Uh, in terms of sort of economic productive labor, uh, it's a little it's a little different. 
So well, it's not no, producing. No. It's hang not on, producing hang on. Value. You said it was the extraction extraction of value from the labor of others. So in this conversation, I'm not trying to be annoying. I'm just trying to make sure we started from the same place. So in this conversation, I will be putting in labor. I assume that you, since you're doing this rather than something else, that you are expecting or anticipating to receive value out of this conversation, right? Not economic value, but yes, va- value as the in the terms of you know something worth something. Like the discussion will get somewhere or provide some interesting context or whatever like that, but not necessarily economic value. Not something that we could uh, you know say uh, exchange necessarily uh, for for something that would be valuable, either another commodity or or money. That which is the uh, just a, an embodiment of exchange value. Okay, so it's not the exchange of value. Because we just, again, this is why the definitions are so important. It's not the extraction of value from the labor of others. Because if I give you something helpful in this conversation, then, of course, it would be a value to you, right? And, and I would be doing labor in order to achieve that. Now, it's not one-sided because um, uh, I will also be getting value out of you uh, in this conversation. And that's perfectly fine. So it's not, um, it's not value as a whole. It is the extraction of economic value. Is that right? Yeah, yeah, and and particularly the surplus value. So the extraction of value beyond what is uh, what uh, it's the extraction of the value produced beyond what you pay. Right. In, okay. In wages. Now this th- this occurs. We'll just take the typical scenario of the factory and the factory owner. Right. Mm-hmm. Now. Let's take as friendly, as market friendly a situation as possible. And we're not going to deal with inherited wealth. Or let's just start off sort of easy because I really do want to understand this. Mm-hmm. So if I am a worker, uh, which I was, you know, I, I, I started a factory. You know, I started, I co- co-founded a company and, and grew it fairly well. And so I had been... Um, Learning how to work with computers since I was like 11 or 12 years old, I'd go in every Saturday and I'd work with the computer lab and I'd sign the computers out and I'd, I'd um, keep them at home and I'd learn how to program them and, and all that kind of stuff. And so and I put a, a huge amount of unpaid labor to, to learn all of that stuff. I also read a lot of business magazines and uh, a lot of business books and, and so on. It took some, a course or two. Um, not economics, but history with some economics in, and um, and then did a lot of unpaid labor to to sort of build a product with the person I co-founded the company with, and so um, we then ended up building something that we could sell, and then took out loans and and sold equity and and hired, uh, well, built. The, or got the computers and, and rented out the office space. And I won't go through the whole list, but it's a huge amount of unpaid labor and time that you have to put in, uh, at least I had to put in, in order to be in a position to hire people. And then I hired people who then worked on the coding and worked on other things that were needed, that needed to be done in the, uh, in the business. Sure. And I took on risks that they didn't take on, which was perfectly fine. I mean, I co-signed loans that were would have ruined me if we hadn't survived and all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Now, the person who I then hire is gaining the benefit of all of that unpaid labor. So if we were to be paid the same, 
that would be unfair because the person I hired made less than I did and did not have equity, at least at the beginning, in the company. But they also hadn't put in the thousands of hours of unpaid labor that I had put in in order to start the business. Uh, so that person is getting economic value from my labor, right? My labor in building the business, which they can then step into and start to use. So I am getting surplus value out of them and that I hope to sell their labor for more than I'm paying them. But they're also getting surplus value, economic value out of me insofar as they don't take the risk or do the unpaid labor that it took to start the business. And that's my sort of experience. But you could transfer that very easily to a sort of more traditional factory situation. Uh, what are your thoughts? Sure. Well, my, my thoughts on that are, are I, I follow you. I understand you up to that point. Uh, well, until up to the point. So as a the person who starts to starts a factory or you're in your situation, you know, you do all the, the work, the upfront work, you know, as they call it, to sort of get it all running up and running. So when you're at the point of being able to, you sort of have an entity, you have space, you, you, you're ready to hire workers. Um, it's m totally understandable, both sort of economically as well as, uh, say, morally or um, yeah, morally is that's the best word. And uh, to essentially enter into what amounts to a contract with the people that you employ that says, I will employ you at such and such a price. And but I'm going to in for a period of time such that I'm able to recoup what I have already sort of. I'm already down. I've already lost. You know, there's a lot of unpaid labor that's gone into getting us here, and therefore I need to then recapture that uh, that investment. If you if you made that agreement, I don't necessarily have a problem with that. the The issue that I have, the problem that I have, is that what happens in in uh, these kinds of arrangements is that the person in the position of ownership recoups their loss, you know, either through the extraction of uh, the surplus labor over a period of time, such that they've made up what investment they have put in, either through unpaid labor or their own actual capital or whatever. But once they have essentially uh, been benefited, they've been given back the benefit that they have expended, the any uh, extraction of surplus labor after then is, in my in my view, unjustified, uh, not necessarily moral, and is economically uh, un unfeasible in the long run. Um, because it Okay, so, so to... hang on. Okay. Let me just, sorry to interrupt, but let me just run, try and no, respond no, no. to that. Sure. Okay, so let's say that uh, the worker owes me, when we start, $100,000. Okay. In other words... For for me to have done all the work that I'm just picking a number, I just yeah, it could yeah. be ten thousand. Let's just right. say hundred thousand. But yeah. let's say the worker when they hire when I hire them, they owe me a hundred thousand dollars because that's what they owe me for having set up the business. Now I I don't charge them a hundred thousand dollars and then make them a full equity partner. Although to be fair, the worker could do that, right? Mm -hmm. The worker could say, listen. Uh, I want to buy in equity in the business. I am going to put in a hundred thousand dollars investment. I want to buy part of the business, and they could become a part owner of that business, right? But but if they don't want to do that, and when you're young, I didn't, and the people I hired didn't usually want to do that. They say, okay, well, I'm not going to be able to give you the hundred thousand dollars I owe you for doing all the work to set this business up and to be in a position to hire me. So I'm going to just pay you out of every paycheck. I'm going to pay you ten percent value out of every paycheck for you having created the business and done that, right? Mm -hmm. Now, are you saying at some point, like a house, that 
is at some point paid off. Right. Right. Except, except not really. Because the, uh, the business of running a business is one of continual improvement, right? You've got to upgrade the, the computers. You've got to uh, expand the offices. You've got to go scout new locations. You've got to find new customers. And all of this is very expensive and an ongoing cost, which the employee has to pay for at some point. I mean, really, it's the customers who pay. But it's the employee who has to contribute to all of that. There's no point having programmers if there aren't any salespeople out there selling the product, right? Because so this, the, the, And there's no point having people out selling the product if there are no programmers to either make or, or upgrade or improve the product and so on. So I'm not sure where it ends up that you stop upgrading. If you sort of a, think of a traditional factory, uh, they're constantly upgrading uh, the machinery, they have to put in, you know, when regulations change, they have to put in more um, pollution filters, uh, they have to put in wheelchair ramps for accessibility, they have to upgrade for safety, uh, and so on. And uh, and there is, of course, an ongoing risk that the owners take, which the employees don't take. Right. So there's, and so there's... like, if, if, you're, if you're an owner, and the business goes bankrupt, you can, you can be personally liable, depending on your contracts, you can be personally liable for, but if the business goes Most bankrupt, the employees that. just walk away. Right. So there's, so there's two different sort of ways of look, or you've sort of gone in two different directions. One are your sort of costs of business. These are costs of doing business. And in most situations, I mean, in maybe not the smallest kind of entities, but in a sort of medium size or large size business, the business entity either begins as or becomes a sort of legal entity in itself. And so it can, uh, and, and this can be, in, you know, with agreement with employees and everything, it can build up its own capital for which it will then reinvest its own money. The individual capitalist, the, the person who, the individual who may have started it and may or may not have liabilities, depending on how they, they set up the, the, uh, the entity, um, that means that the business could uh, could sort of reinvest money that it may extract, you know, the surplus labor it may extract from the employee, but may do so to reinvest back in the business. That's one thing that shouldn't in, in a sort of successful business or at least one that isn't in the beginning stages ought to be paid by the business itself. Um, and hang on, the, hang on, hang on. If it can't hang on, do okay. that, then it's not as, sorry, you know, not being sorry successful. to interrupt. Wait, can you hear me? Mm-hmm. Okay. Now, if, if I'm the business owner, and let's say the business makes a million dollars, then I can take that million dollars out of the company and keep it for myself, right? Sure. Now, if I do that, though, I'm not reinvesting in the business, and it's going to be short-term gain, long-term pain, right? Because worker productivity is the key, and worker productivity is dependent generally on how much you're willing to reinvest back into your own business, you know, like if you, wanna, you if you want to, if you want to run a, a, I'm sorry, or how much you think you have to reinvest, right? You don't, I mean, you might not say, you could say out of that million dollars, well, the business only needs say $200,000 to put into an account for, you know, what we see our upcoming costs and I'm going to pocket the 800,000 that's left. I mean, you could do that. You could, you could, but if, if there's market value in investing half a million dollars and you only invest $200,000, then your competitor across the street who invests half a million will probably end up out-competing you. That, so well, it's a balance, right? Whereas on the other hand, yeah. But I mean, so whereas, hang on. whereas on the other hand, if everybody takes all of the profits, like if, if I uh, take all of the profits and invest it back into the business, like if I work for $1 
a year and put all the money back into the business, that is really not a sustainable business model because if I get hit by a truck, there's an artificial profit there, which is me not taking a salary, which if I need to be replaced, if I decide I want to go prick grapes in Queensland or become a mime or, as I say, get hit by a bus, then you have an artificial subsidy, which is the owner not taking a regular paycheck. And so that's not sustainable. So it's some balance where you you have to pay people enough in management that they're going to want to do a good job. But at the same time, you also have to reinvest back into the business. Now, the money that you reinvest back into the business is another loan that you're making to the employees, right? Because you're, you're now lending, let's say you, you, you make a million dollars, you put half a million dollars back into the business. Well, that's half a million dollars that you're, quote, lending to the employees. So I'm not sure that it ever kind of gets paid off as long. I mean, you, you could say it gets paid off if you simply stop reinvesting anything in your business, but that's uh, a decaying orbit scenario. Well, and, and when it would be a, it would be an, a debt to, or the sort of from you to them, if you paid it out of your own pocket, but if it's, if it's money that's generated by the business activity or the productive activity of the business, then it's not, it's not a loan from you to the employees. It's, it's value it that is. the employees have generated that would otherwise go to you, which you are then deciding to go back into the business. When you, when the business is what's making the, the, the value, the, the, the sort of capital. No, no, no. Hang on. So if the, it, let's say I'm a hundred percent owner of the business, the business makes a million dollars. I have the perfect right to take the that million dollars out. employees make the million dollars. Well, no, the business as a whole makes the million dollars. Well, right. But the, the, the people who do the work that produces the value in the business are the people who work at the business. So the workers, well, the managers not necessarily. Work too. Well, it, it's everyone who produces, who can, whose value can be attributed to the total value of the product. It's, it's, it's useful labor. It's, it's actually, you know, there, there's a lot of idle labor in quote unquote. Okay, idle labor. Wait, 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 one, one thing at a time. <laughs> one thing well, at a yeah, time. Let's take idle labor. Yeah, no, 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 not, not just yet. We're, we're trying to keep this as simple as possible at the beginning. Okay. So if the business as a whole, which I'm managing, if it makes a million dollars and I'm a hundred percent owner, then I, I have that hundred million dollars. Sorry, I have that hundred. I have that million dollars. I can take that million dollars and put it right in my bank account and then give half of it to the bank, to the government, because I'm in Canada, high taxes, right? Now, if I take half a million dollars instead of a million dollars, then that is a direct return of half of my income in back into the business. How do you generate right? So that's your what I mean when I say right, the business. Yeah, makes a yeah. million dollars, I'm reinvesting it back. And that is a kind of loan to the future productivity of the workers, which they are liable for in terms of a reduced salary. And the reason they'll take that reduced salary is because it actually increases their salary, right? So for me to reinvest in the business makes the employees more productive. It makes, uh, you know, we get faster computers, we get better graphics cards, we get faster rendering time, whatever it's going to be. We get better tools, better equipment, we get a nicer office, whatever it's going to be. So whatever it is that I'm reinvesting, we, they, they, they continue to take that loan and they take that loan because it's better for them than not taking the loan because it's a sustainable and growing business out of that. Yeah, and it may, that may be a decision that the employees are, are making it given, given the sort of limited uh, decisions or the, the, the limited choices that they have, and there may be a certain amount of logic to that. But the the larger point is by you by you saying, okay, the business generates a million dollars, therefore I get a million dollars, right? There, there's a sort of equating the person to the entity. You are the business because you're asserting 100% ownership rights over that business, which means that all of the value that's created beyond what you have to pay for is 
your money. Is that right? Would that be fair to say? Well, again, I'm sorry, after saying let's keep it as simple as that, it's not, there's a million dollar profit. However, um, that's not the total amount that the business makes, right? I mean, there's the yeah, gross yeah, and then yeah, there's the net, profit. as you know, right? right. And so profit. the employees are getting back s some value and I'm getting back some other value. And the value that I get back is larger because I created the business and I need to be paid for all the unpaid labor that I brought into the well, situation and the risk. And let's all say that. You're, you're paid for that unpaid labor. We're, we're in a position where you have been paid for your unpaid labor. So this is a million, there's a million dollars in profit that the business has generated that you are then going to take and decide what you want to do with it. So the, right. the, right. So the issue there, that's, that is in some ways my issue because what you're saying is that the employees have, have at that business, which may or may not involve you if you're doing managerial work or you're taking a sort of paycheck or you're actually paying yourself a wage from the business, um, but if you're not, let's say you're just, you know, sort of waiting for the, the monthly check to come in. That no, 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 no. Sorry. We, we can't jump out of this scenario yet. Okay. Because well, if we, if are we you can't find in, exploit, no, hang on, hang on, right. hang on, hang on, hang on. If we can't find exploitation in this scenario, then we need to look for something, some other definition. That's why we have this scenario at the moment. Right. So there's... There's a few fundamental questions then. Does We're assuming that the scenario, it, you have some assumptions. That one, the initial investment in terms of unpaid labor that you have invested or capital or whatever has been paid back. Let's let We can assume that. No, no, no. My whole argument was that it can never be paid back because I'm continuing to work, I'm continuing to expand my skills, and I'm continuing to forego making money from the business and turning it into my personal income in order to reinvest in the business. So it can never be paid off. It's like saying, can I ever pay off a house where I'm continually upgrading it every single year? Well, no, because you may pay off the original house, but by then you've got to pay for the deck and the swimming pool and the tennis courts and the helicopter landing pad and the gold faucets. If you That's continue assuming... to upgrade the house every year, then you can't ever pay it off. And since business owners tend to upgrade the capital equipment that the employees use every single year and expand and grow and take more risks and do partners and have to hire legal departments and all the stuff that then compliance departments and human resources departments, all the things which the employees usually don't see and interact with directly. Because you're continually reinvesting in the business, the initial loan can never be paid off. And uh, no, the, 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 the issue there is, is that your continual reinvestment is reinvestment of money that's been generated by the labor of the people who work at the business. So it's not an analogy. Your house is not an analogy because the the paying off the house takes money that the house itself doesn't generate to, to purchase. So it's not the house is not generating the money that you're reinvesting in the house and thereby loaning. Well, it. so switch it's it to a hotel. Analogy. It doesn't matter. Just just switch it to a hotel then. The, the hotel generates money. Is money. Generated by, the hotel's money is generated by the labor that goes into maintaining that business. So it... it no. No. Yes. No, that's, that's factually if there, incorrect. There were, if there were... The, the, well, part of it is the fact that they're just renting. So that it is a somewhat of a different thing. But if you didn't have people who worked there, it wouldn't work. I mean, there needs and to if be they some didn't have something to work in, if they didn't like, if they didn't have something to work in, their labor would be completely valueless. And I give you a, 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 like a thirty-second example, right? So I used to work as a waiter. Now somebody had to build that restaurant. They had to order the plates. Uh, they had to order the food. They had to pass the health and safety inspection. Every, everything they had to pay, pay the electricity. Now, if there was no plates, no restaurant, no chairs, no customers, and I was just standing in a field, wandering around back and forth, and <laughs> 
You know, I would be paid no money. You have to wrap the worker in something that's economically productive in order for the labor to have value. So it's true. And this is why it's, it's a symbiotic relationship. The capitalist creates the environment that makes the workers that much more productive. But saying the only reason the hotel generates money is the workers is saying, okay, well, let's take the same people and let's put them underwater. Let's put them on the moon. Let's put them in a field. They're not going to make a damn thing. You need the capital stuff around you in order for your labor to be valuable. You, yes, I mean obviously you need a, a a place to to that and and tools and all of those different things to be able to be productive. I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is that once that that gets going, the the idea of a business is that it's self-sustaining, so that it produces its own. It, it doesn't even produce its own value or what it needs to maintain itself, but it actually produces the value enough to be able to grow and to do more. So I mean, it's it's. I'm sorry, the, I don't, I don't know, I don't know what you mean. It produces enough value to grow and do more. I'm not sure what that means. The idea of of a bit of a successful business is a business that generates more money than it than it spends, and that that would that allows that business to then expand, and or you know, depending on the situation, either give dividends or whatever. But it allows the company to continue on and to hopefully grow which is the sort of point of any business is to be able to No, I, do, I get all of that, more. but I, I still, I, I, I know, I've been an entrepreneur, I know all of that. Okay. But what, so, so because it needs to expand and continue to grow, and of course people quit or you have to fire them or whatever, and then you've got to go out and find new people, which is very time consuming and has its own risks as well. Uh, and so you're continually needing uh, to invest more and more money in the business, which means that the employee's are never going to get the quote loan paid off because there's continually addition additional loans being made to them in order to expand or even just maintain the business. You know, having a car, uh, it, it decays, everything wears out. You you can, even if you don't want to expand or grow, you still have to. You know, plates get broken in a restaurant. Uh, your your oven wears out. You know, the the heating, ventilation, and air conditioning it has to be replaced because it's old or the regulations change or whatever it is. Right, so it never ends. You know, there's the initial business thing, uh, and then just even to maintain. A single restaurant you never want to grow can cost quite a bit of uh, money, and that's money that the employees don't pay. So you lend them that money, which is why you continue to uh, take additional uh, profits from their labor. That's the payback for the loan that you're giving them, which makes their labor that much more valuable. What well, makes them makes it valuable at all? Okay. The thing is on that is that if you're suggesting that the profit is what is being paid to the to be paid to the worker. Right in the, in this sort of second round of of invest, investment, that then they have to pay back through the exploitation of their or not the exploitation but the extraction of their surplus value. If you're, what you're assuming in that is that all of the profit that's generated by the labor of the employees is transferred to the individual owner, and then the owner decides to reinvest that, rather than the then a certain amount of value being like being generated by the employees. That can then be used by the business itself, that essentially being the everyone that's working there, to make those investments. So it doesn't have to depend on the necessarily the owner making that investment, thereby allowing them to to continue to extract the surplus labor. They can basically the the, the organization does that itself by producing that by producing value over an amount over and above the amount it costs. So the issue that I have in this whole thing—I'm sorry, I, is I don't know what you're talking of, about. Hang the, on, because the hang position, on. The, hang on, hang on, hang on. Let me explain it if you don't hang know on. it. 
No, I don't. Kevin, I don't know what you're talking about. And I, well, I have, have to, to interrupt you when it. I don't know what you're talking about, because I don't want to just nod glassily into the camera here and, and pretend I know what you're talking about. Okay. Well, so I'm uh, not trying to interrupt you because I want to break your flow. I, I don't know what you're talking about. I mean, we just went through the scenario where the business makes a million dollars and I, as the business owner, rather than keep that million dollars, I keep half of it and reinvest half of it back into the business. And I thought we'd sort of agreed that that was the scenario. And now I'm not sure what you're talking about. I just got confused. That's all. Well, we could, then we could we'll do it this way then, just so I don't confuse you. What I would say is that if, if you are, if your income from the business is the profits of the business and you decide to reinvest 500, you know, half of that money back into the business, the way to look at that, you can look at it two ways. One, I'm investing this back in the business, therefore they owe me. Or the business has, basically, I have not taken that much. The business has retained that $500,000 and it's then making the purchases that it's doing and I'm retaining the $500,000. Wait, so, what, in this scenario, what is the business? I don't, that's a piece of paper. I, it doesn't make any decisions at all. I'm not no, the sure business, what No, the business is the, is the business. It's the building it, it's in, it's the workers who work at it, and it's the machines or whatever it is that it takes to do whatever production is being done there. So but that, though, none of those entity. things make the decisions about the profits. The building doesn't, the workers don't, unless you have a particular kind of business. Well, and so yeah, that, I, have the right to take the million, I have the right to take the million dollars as the owner. If I decide to reinvest half of that money back, that's a de decision an individual has to make. I mean, I don't know where the, the, the abstract term business comes in. There, well, because there are many, many, now maybe not in this necessarily scenario, but there are many, many, many situations in which the sort of business decisions about what the business is going to do is not made by the person who gets the profit check. There are, right, so there are a lot of entities that are not owned and controlled and all of the okay, decisions on, are made by on. one individual. No, no, Ke Kevin, we... We got a rule here, and the rule is we're dealing with a particular scenario. You keep wanting to break off and go into right. other scenarios. The scenario that you presented is useful for you because the the because the the way that that situation works sort of proves your whole point. But it isn't how the how things actually work. So you could you can make what do you this. Mean? Hang on, hang on, dude. Are you really going to tell me who's been an entrepreneur for about 30 years that I have no idea how things work in the entrepreneurial world? Do you really want to take that path with me? Well, I didn't, I didn't say that stuff. I, what I yes, said you was... You said you this know, is not how things really work. What I'm saying is this, this, instant, this example that you're, that you're using is not necessarily how many businesses are run. Right. There are decision making never, processes look, look, all dude, the way through. Oh, my business. God. Do you not know? Do you not know how? To, oh, God. OK, I could just this for the audience. Maybe, you know, maybe you don't. OK, so the way that philosophy works is you put forward a theory and here the extraction of economic value from the labor of others is exploitation and exploitation, of course, has a negative connotation. Right. So I created a scenario, which is a very real world scenario that I myself lived through for many years. In, all, in, in where the extraction of economic value from the labor of others was not exploitive. And that doesn't mean that there's no exploitation in business. I'm sure that there is. But what it means is that we need a different kind of definition then, right? We need a different kind of definition because if the scenario that I put forward, you know, the guy who starts a business and he ends up uh, you know, taking a million bucks out of that business and then putting half a million dollars back into the business and so on, if that 
scenario is not exploitive, then we need to refine our definition. That's that's all. So so this is why I keep pulling you back into this scenario because we're trying to figure out is our is our definition of exploitation, the extraction of economic value from the labor of others, is our definition of exploitation comprehensive and valid? Now, if in this scenario it's not exploitive in a negative way, and I think we can both admit that it isn't, then we need to refine, further refine. It doesn't cast out your definition of exploitation. It simply means that we need to refine it. Uh, like we could say the extraction of economic value from the labor, labor of others when you've done nothing to create that value or, or, or whatever. Like, but it's, it, that, this is how we have to have a debate. We can't set up a scenario to test a hypothesis or a definition. And then we can suddenly just jump off as, as if we're talking about something else. We never get anywhere there. Right. Okay. So, yeah, I mean, you could add, if, if we want to redefine the definition, uh, we can. And I think just adding that, that little last part is probably not a bad place to start. So exploitation is the extraction of, value, of economic value from a productive laborer uh, by a, say, non-productive entity, usually a person, right? So it's, it's productive yeah, okay. value extracted yeah. uh, and, uh, and then uh, taken by a person who, who contributes no labor. Or whose labor, or whose whose value they're getting far outweighs the actual value of the labor that they that they put into the business. Right. Okay. So we we and appreciate your patience with this. So we've re, we've refined, which is you know the point of the Socratic dialogue. We've refined the definition, and just tell me if I've got this right or not. It's the extraction exploitation is the extraction of economic value from the productive labor of others where you are unproductive. Sure. Yep. Okay. Now the problem is that includes babies. What do you mean? How do babies produce value? No, <laughs> babies are not productive, but they extract economic value from the productive labor of others, right? You've got to buy them a crib. You've got to buy them food. You've got to buy them toys. You've got to buy them onesies. You've got to buy them diapers and you have to do a lot of labor. So you're spending a lot of money. So again, we just have to further refine the definition because babies and, and children and so on extract economic value from the productive labor of others when they are unproductive. And uh, this is also true of charity, right? So people who are, who are receiving charity are getting economic value from the productive labor of others while they themselves are unproductive. So we just have to keep, you know, this, this is part of the whole process, right? We just have to keep refining the definition until we can figure out what, fits the best scenarios, um, the, the best general scenarios. Yeah, so you could just add another uh, sort of clause at the end, right? So it's the extraction of value from uh, productive labor by an unproductive person uh, who, that, who does so, let's see, who does so based on their, uh, their position as an owner, say. Or because of because of the assertion of an economic right, that being the right. Well, no, but hang on, hang on. Those two are not the same. Because if if you're an owner, then you automatically are providing economic value by letting other people use your property, right? So if I own a restaurant and people work there, they're gaining value because I'm letting them use my restaurant, and then they're not carrying dandelions around in a field. So you, we can't say owner; it has to be something else. Why can't you, uh, explain that to me again? That was very confusing. Sure. Sorry. So, um, 
if I, uh, if, if I own a car, right, and you want to rent my car, then I am automatically providing you value because I own the car, right? So I've put some, I've ended up with the ownership in some manner. We don't have to figure out exactly why. But by lending you my car, I've automatically provided value. So it can't be just that um, you're, you're the owner and, and therefore you're not productive. You are productive because you're lending other people your property in order to um, allow them to increase the value of their labor. That suggests that that property has value, like it just has sort of inherent value. Is that is that an assumption that you take? So if you, you have something, let's say a, a if building I, I mean, or a piece if, of if I if I pick my nose, my booger is mine. But I don't know if I'm going to get a lot for it on eBay. So I don't know that property has. You know, we we spend a lot of money to take the property called human feces and move them as far away from our bathrooms as humanly possible, right? <laughs> Although if I take a crap on your lawn, it's me who's um, arrested for vandalism or whatever it is. So uh, I don't think all property has value. Um, you know, if it, you own your own appendix, but if it's about to kill you, it's really good if somebody goes in and saws it out with a, um, with a chainsaw or something. So I don't know that I would argue that all property has value. So how is it that just by means of ownership of, of some kind of property, you by allowing someone else to use that or say occupy it if it's a piece of land, do you confer economic value? Well, because the person wants to use it. Like, so if I build a house and somebody wants to live there, then it has value for them because they want to use that property. But does it have, does it have economic value in terms of, so it might have value to the person, right? Even if the person is sort of willing to pay for it, but does that have economic value in such that it can be, that it can generate additional value because i think that's an important I don't know what that means. distinction a business can generate additional value it's it's production generates value a business that doesn't have any and it does so through its employees if a business doesn't have any employees it doesn't make any it doesn't have any or it isn't able to produce any economic value therefore the the uh, if you were to have an idle factory and you were to allow someone to walk through an idle factory it's not as if you're conferring on them any sort of economic benefit, right? It's only right. if there's if only if there's production happening there does is there any sort of even possibility of conferring any kind of benefit, and it's only conferring it based on this notion that you have the ability to own this piece of property, which is an issue that I don't know if you want to get into. We can get into that, but I I think that that's that is a problematic uh, issue because it allows for the idea that you can somehow transfer value, economic value, merely by your position as owning that piece of property and allowing someone else to use it. And I think that that is a sort of phantom value that we have created in our own minds and over the course of a long history of, of sort of theoretical development, but that has as its basis a, 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 a system that doesn't that isn't actually related. I'm sorry, I got to interrupt you because I got kind of lost at the beginning. I, I don't know what you're talking about, but I, if I had to guess, I would say that it's something like there are productive goods and consumptive goods. So there are goods like a house that we do not expect to make money out of. Maybe you could make money if you sell it and it goes up in value, but you know, you basically, you have a house because you need to keep the rain off your head and so you have a house. Whereas there are other things that you will buy that you will expect will make money. So you, if, you, if you buy a car, just to drive around and enjoy yourself, that's a consumptive good. 
But if you buy a car so that you can turn it into a taxi and rent it out for money or you want to make Uber money or whatever, then that's a productive good. Uh, so is that what you're talking about? There's a difference between goods which you consume without them making money. Uh, and then there are goods which you uh, purchase in order to hopefully generate future income. Sure. Yeah, I think there's a huge difference. Okay. I don't know what that has to do with anything, but I certainly accept that there are those two economic classes of property. Okay. Well, and I think so, whereas the sort of non-productive property, uh, there isn't really much of an idea with ideas of ownership of that kind of property or anything like that. What it, when it comes to the productive productive property, for lack of a better term, that's where I find the problematic uh, it, it problematic that those ideas that 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 those kinds of entities can be owned by individuals who then, by their position of owner, can at at some point be able to extract value from the production the production that's going on at that that you know property that the, then they, and they, they can add no value to that, but they can take what value is generated from that. I find that sort of morally problematic, but also economically problematic. Okay, so I can own personal property. So if I buy a laptop because I want to watch Netflix and, and play video games, that's fine. But if I buy a laptop because I want to record audiobooks and sell them for money, that's bad. Well, no, it, no, because that's you doing it. You, that's you, your own labor. You're inputting labor into it. If you want to buy a like a computer for the sole purpose of charging someone to use that computer, do some kind of uh, economic activity, uh, I have. I think that there's a problem with that. Okay, so okay, so we've got three classes now. So there's a class of computer that you use for personal consumption. That's not fine. Uh, that's fine for you. There's something which you use for your own economic productivity, and that's fine. But if I buy a computer, and then I charge people fifty cents an hour uh, in some remote African village because they want to check email or browse the web or whatever, then that's bad. Yeah. So well, it's not, consumption I mean, it's is bad. Good. Productivity. Yeah, right. Sorry, consumption resources are good. Productive resources are bad, but rental re are good. But rental resources are bad. Is that right? The ownership of those, not not just not them in themselves are bad, but the the ownership of those things such that you are able to extract from other people value. That's the issue. Okay, so if I buy the laptop and I rent, I rent it out for 50 cents an hour in some remote African village, clearly I can't use the laptop while I'm renting it out, right? Mm -hmm. So I have spent money on a laptop, which I can't use because I'm renting it out. So it's a net negative for me. In other words, it would be charity if I simply bought notebooks and handed them out for free or let people use them for free or whatever. But if we look at sort of economic value, if I buy a laptop and then let people rent it out, then that's a net negative for me because I bought property which I can't use because other people are taking temporary ownership of it. Like when I go to uh, give a speech somewhere and if I rent a car, then the car, the, the, the people who bought the car to lend it to me can't use it and can't lend it to anyone else while I've got sole ownership of it. So car rental businesses would be bad. So if I buy a car for fun, that's fine with you. If I buy a car and use it to make money through Uber or something, that's fine with you. But if I rent a car, the person who rents the car to me is bad. Well, it's, again, different in that because, yeah, if you, it's not bad in the sense that there's, there's nothing wrong with the 
pro- the car, right? What's wrong with is, is what you're doing with it and how you're getting the value from it. And again, I, it's very important that I, I don't have a problem with there being arrangements such that you're able to recoup whatever it is it, the, of the original cost. If you have a cost that goes into something, it's understandable to, to, to sort of demand or to, to create a situation where you're going to be paid back for it. But if you, you buy a car and you rent it out and you're paid back the full value of that car and you continue to then rent it out and there, therefore extracting surplus value, um, I think that that's problematic. But and it but it really, you cannot, it really, dude, dude, dude my God, have you have you ever run a business? I'm just I'm just curious about this. Have I ever run one? No. Have I been okay. involved in so this all, them? all have book I started? Stuff. Okay. I, if you if you if you buy a let's say I buy a car and the car is going to last for ten years, right? And I buy the car and uh, I have to put let's just say it's a twenty thousand dollar car. So I have to buy I have to take twenty thousand dollars out of my bank account and give it to the people who make the car. And then there's gas maintenance and depreciation, right? So wear and tear, depreciation as a whole, plus the ongoing costs of the car. So you tell me if I take that $20,000 car and let people drive it for eight hours a day, and I'm responsible for gas, oil, maintenance, wind, washer fluid, uh, getting it cleaned, getting it uh, sprayed, uh, people smoking it, I got like all of that stuff. When is it paid off? I'll tell you when it's paid off. It's paid off when it goes to the junkyard or I sell it secondhand or whatever it is, right? So there's at no point do, and this is just competition in the marketplace. So if I spend $20,000 on the car and then I spend another five or $10,000 a year maintaining it, let's just say $5,000 a year maintaining it, and that goes on for 10 years, that's $50,000 plus the $20,000. That's $70,000 accumulating over uh, 10 Years now, I'm not going to get into all of the rolling costs, but there's inflation and there's the opportunity costs of having. I could have put the money into uh, uh, some sort of stock or some sort of bond or some GIC or whatever it is, right? So uh, it costs, you know, hundred, hundred and fifty thousand dollars all told. I say, well, it's only a twenty thousand dollar car. Yes, but the overall cost over ten years is uh, very significant, and so that is everything that you have to take into account when you are charging people for that car. And if you overcharge people for that car, then you'll be undercut by somebody who is going to charge a more reasonable amount in a free market scenario. So you can't just say, well, there's a point at which the car is paid off, and after that, it's all profit, because. If, there's a, if you can rent this car out for $5,000 a day, where you say, okay, well, then the car is paid off in like a week or two, and the rest of it is pure profit. But the point is, of course, nobody's going to rent your car for $5,000 a day. If you do the actual math, or if you actually run a business, rather than read about running businesses, you'll very quickly find out that the amount of money that people charge for stuff kind of mirrors its cost of ownership, cost of operation, uh, its opportunity cost of the money you had to invest to buy it, and depreciation value as well. It and does kind of mirror profit- that. In other words, the, the price of loaning out your car turns out to be a little bit more than all of the money that you've lost or spent in having that car for 10 years. So there is no magic point. It's a soft landing. It's a, a really soft landing for it. There's no point at which you say, oh, now it's all pure profit, because anybody who does that is overcharging be undercut in the marketplace. Okay. Now that assumes it, 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 that assumes a, a market that one doesn't exist or one that would work absolutely perfectly. Now that being said, 
what I, there would be. Oh, hang on, hang case, on, hang on. No, no, big statement, case, big statement, Kevin. I know, I know, I know, because I'll explain it, I'll explain it. What I'm saying well, I know, is, what does absolutely that, perfectly mean? I don't know what case, that means. Because if that was the case, where would any profit be generated? How could profit be generated? Because if the market was so efficient at basically finding out where things are overcharged and all that kind of stuff, then you'd be, you'd essentially, it would bring it down so that profit would be so, like you'd have such minuscule amounts of profit because as soon as you start making the profit, which is obviously the, um, the more that basically the higher cost you can charge for something more than the cost it costs you, why, how could there be the generation of profit if the market is so efficient at finding the, where the equilibrium between the cost and the, and the price is so perfect? I mean, it, the profit wouldn't do you want, exist. Do you want to ask for that, or do you want to just keep asking the question? Well, you want if you want to think I'm disingenuous, you're re, you know reading it. No, no, no. I mean, just because I, I thought I mean, you finished asking the question, then you just kept going. And if you want to keep going, I'm happy to listen. But I thought you asked a good question. I'd like to take a swing at answering it. Don't have to interrupt to answer the question. So go ahead. All right. So profit is what draws people into the creation of stuff. In other words. Let's say that I said to you, hey, man, I got a great idea. I want you to work 14 hours a day for three years, and I'm going to pay you a dollar. You'd be like, no, not going to do it, right? So profit is, is, the, is what you pay to get entrepreneurs to create stuff. And people always like new stuff. They like cool stuff. They like great stuff. And so in an interesting way, if business grinds profit down so low, then what happens is Entrepreneurs are no longer attracted to that environment. In other words, if, if a profit is only 1% or 1.5% or whatever, what that indicates is that there are too many entrepreneurs in that particular area. And so what happens is entrepreneurs start go, stop going into that particular area and they start going somewhere else where there's more profit to be had. They create new stuff. They upgrade stuff, right? Used to be able to make a lot of money selling telephone switching boards. You can't do that so much anymore. Used to be able to make a lot of money uh, selling uh, cell phones the size of Kleenex boxes that you had to point at the sky and couldn't stand under a tree in order to have them work. Can't make that rotary dial phones. You sort of get the general idea. And so because people are constantly, the creative destruction of the free market, there's constant change, constant opportunities for new profit. There's no equilibrium in the free market because all resources are finite and all human desires are functionally infinite. And therefore, there's always things that people want better, faster, uh, more efficient, more colorful, more pretty, more enjoyable, better smelling, more sexy, whatever it's going to be. So there's really no practical limit to the possibilities that can generate profit. But if uh, so, if you're looking at a perfectly static free market, you're not looking at a free market. You're looking at, I don't know, some centrally planned chaos mess currently descending into um, the worst stereotype of anarchy that you could imagine, but enough about fiat currency. And so uh, in, in a free market, you are constantly um, leaping over other people. You are constantly creating new things that displace prior industries, right? So that there used to be a great business shoveling horse crap in New York City because they used horses and, you know, they just crapped everywhere. And um, then cars came along and that job kind of, so the people who invested in horse and buggy manufacturing, their profits declined, which was a signal to say, when profits decline, it means either that the market is overcrowded, which means that too many goods are being produced, which is going to drive down consumer uh, demand, uh, or um, consumer demand is evaporating on its own, just as it did for rotary dial phones and the horse and buggy and so on, which means that entrepreneurs should start focusing society's scarce resources on some other 
area that is going to um, uh, further satisfy the customers. And the first uh, people uh, who, who go to market with that kind of stuff generally get to reap the rewards of being uh, first to market with that stuff. And so there's the, the, the profits tend to be highest in uh, new areas that have created their own demand, right? So nobody thought they really needed a cell phone until there were cell phones. And then nobody thought they needed a flat screen uh, touch phone until they became popular. Nobody ever thought, well, I need high definition video recording in my pocket until, uh, right? So sometimes the supply creates its own demand. And that tends to be where the most profits are. So people are constantly trying to create cool new stuff to sell to people because that's where the greatest profits are. And then there's a long tail of industries that are usually seeing diminishing profits because uh, consumer demand is either shifting to new stuff or just diminishing uh, on its own. So there's no static area where you're going to say, well, in a perfect free market, all profits go to zero. Uh, that simply can't happen because we are insatiable in our thirst for new stuff. How do you understand profits from older businesses then, from, you know, you might say oil producers or something like that? I don't know what you mean. How is, I'm not sure what you mean. What you're suggesting, and correct me if I'm wrong, is that the generation, of, if, if the market tends towards an equilibrium in some, in some area, the, the overall non-equilibrium in the market is in some ways generated by the constant quote-unquote creative destruction and the entrepreneurial activity of seeking out new and innovative products that will, that will either create its own or fill some kind of demand. And that those those entities which are able to capture the market quicker are the ones who realize profits. Otherwise, there's a general declining rate of the profit as either the commodity gets older or there is uh, some kind of means by which the um, the demand falls off or the or the prices get too high because the demand's high and supply's low. I mean. What I'm asking is, in businesses where there is not a lot of innovation in terms of real entrepreneurship, but there's still high rates of profit, what accounts for that? And were you referring to the oil industry in particular? That's, I mean, that's a profitable industry, but yeah. Okay, any, so there's two major industry. reasons. Yeah, there are two major reasons, Kevin, why the oil industry is so profitable. One has to do with the free market and one really doesn't. Of course, the, the one which doesn't, which you're aware of, of course, is that the oil industry has, at least in the Middle East, right, in the biggest oil producing nations, doesn't have anything to do with the free market. It's a fascistic oligarchy, right, a theocracy uh, of, of state-run capitalism that uh, runs this stuff. So it's, and, you know, the, the OPEC thing, um, uh, the Organization of Petroleum Exporting Not Countries. subsidies here, yeah. Right. Oh, God, yeah. Oh, absolutely. Subsidies. Right. And the other thing, too, you know, um, if, you, if you love environmentalism, and by that I don't mean care for nature, but the uh, watermelon stuff, green on the outside, red or communist on the inside. I'm not speaking to you. I'm just speaking to the audience as a whole. The, um, you know, who's responsible for all of the mess uh, that is going on in the Middle East? Well, uh, environmentalists to a large degree, because uh, the Middle East was dirt poor and Muslims uh, were dirt poor and uh, pretty limited in their scope until uh, environmentalists stopped people from using doing a lot of drilling and exploration for oil uh, in the West. And therefore, they had to get all their oil from the East, which put huge amounts of money into Muslim 
uh, theocracies and dictatorships. And so um, that's and now. So that's the non-free market side of things. Yeah, subsidies, regulations, you name it. I mean, it's insane uh, how little of that aspect. But on the other hand, another reason why profits remain high in the um, oil in business is that the oil business is constantly changing. We used to just be able to drill like a toothpick being pushed into sand. You used to be able to drill down and suck the oil up out of the ground. Now, all of that stuff has been exploited. The stuff close to the surface where there's a big pool, you stick a straw in and slurp it out. Now, it's in, of course, there's shale and, and all other kinds of fracking and so on ways of producing oil. But there's also this really weird stuff where you've got these flexible straws, you know, these flexible, they can drill around shelves of rock, go underneath and slurp up stuff that, that they couldn't have gotten through before because they'd have to drill through half a mile of rock. There's some really wild stuff that is uh, going on in terms of oil exploration um, that has been going on for the last generation or so since the easy stuff got kind of pulled up. And so there is a huge amount of innovation and creativity in the engineering and extraction side of the oil business that makes it very entrepreneurial. Uh, they're not just doing the same old stuff. But they are essentially selling the same product, right? So the in terms of from the consumer perspective, what uh, I mean, I guess I don't see that doesn't even really matter. This here's a question that slightly switches gears, but I don't think so. Um, the I I am 100% on your side when it comes to your critiques of the state and uh, the the sort of um, you know, coercive uh, aspect of the whole thing. It's use, monopoly use of power, all of that kind of stuff. So I'm in your camp on on that. What I'm curious about is to, and I and I, I understand where you're coming from. We we have the dif, a dis, disagreement that I think this will get to in terms of uh, the sort of your anarcho-capitalist kind of mentality. Um, and I, I would consider myself a sort of anarcho, uh, maybe syndicalist would be a better way, maybe anarcho-communist, depending on what you want to call it. But um, so I, I agree with all your criticisms of the state and how the state uh, is the, obviously um, screws up market forces. It doesn't do, you know, it doesn't allow for, you know, whatever free market would come out of it, you know, would, would happen if it didn't have that, if it didn't, wasn't so involved in that kind of stuff. But I'm curious why you think it's developed this way and who the state is supposed to serve. Because it appears to me that it, that the reason the state is the way that it is and has the impact that it does, and we have a sort of state capitalist system, is in some ways because of the fa failure of uh, systems where, uh, of, that were more sort of let go, more laissez-faire, and had uh, what I would consider some of the inherent prob problems of capitalism, such that the people who the elite who are the capitalists in in the in new era or in this era, uh, essentially decided that the state was the way for them to retain their position of uh, elite, their elite position. And their, uh, you know, their, and so they do so by not only capturing as much of the market or of industry as they can, but also the politics, thereby making sure that the state always does what they want them to do. I don't know if you disagree with that. You think that's how it's gone, if there's something else to it. But why is it the way that it, why are we in the situation that we are when we have a sort of state capitalist system and um, who is the state actually serving? Well, the state serves itself. But as to why we're in the situation, <clears throat> it's the pursuit of profit through the agency of the state. It's not cheating if it's allowed, right? <laughs> 
right? I mean, if it was disallowed to use your backhand in tennis, then you'd be cheating to use your backhand in tennis. But if you're allowed to use your backhand in tennis, like you're allowed to pick up a ball in rugby, but not soccer. So football. So it's not cheating if you're following by the rules. And unfortunately, the rules of state capitalism are that you will gain by far the most profit on average by manipulating the state into passing laws in your favor or passing laws uh, against other people you're competing with um, and and also using the state to create and enforce monopolies, whether it's doctors or telecoms or whatever it is. And so because there is the state and because the people in charge are paid for their ability to produce profit and because utilization of the state is the best and most certain way to produce and maintain profit, that's exactly what happens. And, and there's simply no way it's not going to happen if there's a state. You know, the, the anarcho part is simply a recognition that human beings cannot handle the power to initiate force. Human beings simply cannot handle the power to initiate force. You can't, I can't, no one can. So the and idea- so this is why we, we say to kids, we say to kids, don't hit. We don't say hit wisely. <laughs> we don't say hit for the common good. Beat up Joey there for the collective excellence of mankind, right? We say don't hit. We just Because nobody, you can't say to a three-year-old, hit wisely. And you can't say to an adult human being, use political power for the benefit of society. Nobody knows what the benefit of society is because society is a vast aggregate of individuals acting for incomprehensible, externally incomprehensible purposes. And a lot of times people don't even know what they're doing stuff for. Why did you become an artist? I don't know, just thought it was cool. <laughs> you know, why did you become a guitarist? Well, everybody knows that one. So um, as long as you have a state, corporations, um, which are a creation of the state, are going to use the state to benefit, right? So in, in the U.S., they're currently trying to get hundreds and hundreds of thousands of third world workers to come in on these H-1B visa programs. Now, this originally, <laughs> this originally started in the early 1950s. And the whole point was, if you had some super genius professor who wanted to come over and teach at Yale for a semester, you couldn't do it. So they created this sort of two classes of uh, visas. One was for like super genius, you know, the people who've got to wheel themselves across uh, and speak at 45 degrees uh, out of a voice box, those people were supposed to come across and be able to get jobs easily because they're irreplaceable, one of a kind. And the other was like, you know, super specialized people who you couldn't find in the United States. If you wanted somebody to translate Urdu into computer code, you know, couldn't find someone like that in the States, highly specialized, highly rare, and so on. And that was sort of the original point. And then, of course, what happened was uh, through a bunch of backroom maneuvering and politics and bureaucracy, bureaucratic manipulation, and so on, they expanded these categories. And so now it's just guy with degree uh, from, you know, phoneitin.india <laughs> or whatever, right? And so now they're just hundreds and hundreds of thousands of these low rent, relatively low skill workers are pouring in and displacing uh, American workers. You say, well, this is really bad. You know, the capitalists shouldn't be doing this. It's like, no, the capitalists have to be doing this because if they don't, they go out of business. Right. So your your fiduciary responsibility as an executive in a corporation is to maximize shareholder value by growing the business, by paying less and all that kind of stuff. Right. And so. If you have the power of the state and you don't use it, then your competitors are going to use it. And no one's going to play that prisoner's dilemma saying, hey, let's none of us go for state, you know, because the first person to break that is going to. So if you're in a room and there's a gun and you know the other guy is going to go for it and shoot you, you have no choice but to try and go for it. And so as a business, it is irresponsible 
it's a, it's a, it's an abridging or a countervailing of your fiduciary responsibility to produce value for your employees, your shareholders, your customers, and so on. You have to, you have to pursue state power, which is one of the reasons why Donald Trump is so unpopular these days, because he can't be bought off. And these guys have invested a huge amount in owning Congress people, right? And so they've grown, they specialize that way. And so if he comes in and shuts off the H-1B visa spigot, well, there's going to be a significant crash in the market. Uh, And good, good, because, you know, I mean, there are lots of people who've lots of skills. Oh, there's a shortage of STEM workers. It's bullshit. It's complete bullshit. They say there's a shortage of STEM workers so the government can credibly sign all these H-1B visas, which is supposed to bring in all these STEM workers. But 40% of people with a master's or a PhD in the STEM fields end up working outside their field because they can't find jobs inside their field because they're being viciously undercut by uh, cut price um, imported labor. And so uh, this is, um, yeah, this modern day serfdom. And these, these poor H-1B visa people, I mean, obviously it's better than where they came from, but, you know, they're not really allowed to start their own businesses. They're not allowed to switch around. They can't really negotiate for better conditions and so on. You get these coding sweatshops and all that. And it's brutal and it's gruesome and it's horrible. And it only requires, it requires a state in order to, to create and sustain it. But the reason you, the state power is there. The gun in the room is going to be used to rob someone. And if it's not you robbing them, it's them robbing you. So everyone is going to be grabbing for that gun and scrabbling for their gun. Just have to take the gun away because that's the only way we get to anything close to a sustainable free market. Well, and as someone whose wife is on an H-1B visa, I'm very, very familiar with what you're talking about in regards to that. Um, it, the, the, however, so the question is, so essentially, so if I could kind of condense your, your position into one uh, sentence, is that when you, have a, when you presuppose a state, right, you have a state, <clears throat> and, you, and, you, and, you, there, and you have the principle of profit and the motivation that comes from it, that motivation for generating as much profit as you possibly can will essentially force you to do what you can to take state power in order to maintain your uh, your profits and maintain and actually grow your profits, hopefully, because of your use. Yeah, and if you won't do it, power. there's a guy down the hall who will. Okay, so it's it's the issue of so the issue the reason why quasi fair capitalism has never actually existed is because there's always been a state. Would that be fair for you to say? Yes. Okay. So so your idea is if we remove the state, then laissez-faire capitalism can work perfectly. Or at least again, I have no idea what the to, word perfectly means. I don't closer know what that closer means. to the, the sort of general ideas of what makes I don't know free market. I, don't care how you know, it I mean there are general principles of free market. No, no. Kevin, I don't care how it works. I know that the initiation of force is immoral and the state is an agency of coercion. So you're asking me, well, if we get rid of slavery, will crops be, be, be picked perfectly? That's not what I'm hanging getting rid of slavery on. I don't care how the crops are picked. I know slavery is wrong. I don't care what happens afterwards. So as far as like, oh, will the free market have a chance to do X, Y, and Z? I don't care. The initiation of force is immoral. The state is an agency of coercion, an agency of violence, and it is wrong. It is wrong. It is as wrong as slavery. It is as wrong as rape. And so what, who does, the, who do, how do people get married if we don't force them to rape each other? I don't care. I don't know. Something will come along and I don't even care what it is. But I do care that the fundamental moral stain that's currently at the heart of society gets at least challenged on its ethical basis. Well, and I, I, I'm in agreement with that from the, and, and, but the, the, the sort of question I have or the, I think where the interesting 
sort of dialogue between you and me would be would be if you don't have a state, so you don't have the whole coercive influence of the state at all, and you, so you, so then your your I don't know if it's your position or if you, you just think that if you if you had a society that didn't have a state and was based on a certain set of principles like you know non aggression and things like things like that that the a sort of market system with from property rights would then develop and would be allowed to would at least be allowed to function without the coercive influence of the state thereby using you know using things like the market forces price determinations things like that would uh would be able to work in a way where there would be where the, the system would sort of work is that fair i mean it would it would work Again, I, all I, of these... I don't know what i don't know what work means if you if you have a society that's founded on the non let me finish if you have a society that's founded on the non-aggression principle then all interactions are voluntary. Now, does that mean people aren't going to make mistakes? Of course they're going to make mistakes. You know, it's like a perfect free market. Who knows? People are going to invest in um, spaceships that turn over sideways and blow up, right? People are going to invest in some crop that fails. They're going to buy turkey farms and the turkeys are all going to get hit by plague or drought. They're going to buy uh, a house next to a river that overflows and destroys. There's always going to be problems. Right. Yeah, I mean, yeah. that's natural. Yeah. There's always risk in, in human life. So I don't know what perfect or any of that means. But what I do know. So if we I stop mean, putting a gun to everyone's head to making them rape each other, people might still break up. They might still uh, cry and listen to too many Adele songs. Right. So but but the point is, is that if you are not forcing people to get married and have sex with each other, all the resulting relationships will be voluntary. Now, does that mean they'll be perfect? Of course not. I don't even know what that would, would mean. But they're voluntary, which means that nobody's got a gun to their head. And that means some people are going to accept too little money for and, and some people are going to ask for too much money. And some people are going to have buyer's remorse. They're going to buy a house and they're going to look at it the next day and say, I hate this place for whatever reason. It's going to happen. But it's voluntary. Now, what happens after things become voluntary? I don't know. I don't care. It doesn't matter. Because if I did care and it did matter, what happened after human relations become voluntary, it would mean I would be back in the fascist seat of central planning again. All I want is for people to be free, to make their mistakes, to interact with voluntary, to grow, to learn, to love, to fail, as they see fit according to their own conscience and their own choices. How that shakes out in the world, I couldn't care less, because there's no way to know. If you could know, it'd be an argument for the state again. Sure. I mean, of course, but you would, you would have, I agree with all that, except for that you would have at least the, uh, some idea of what you would advocate for in terms of that organization. So not, not, not the position where you'd say, do this or, or you'll, you know, I'll kill you or I'll find a bunch of people and we'll all come after you or anything like that. But that you would say, okay, now that we have a system that's based on, you know, pure volunteerism, this is the best way that we can organize ourselves to be able to to accomplish goals, whether that goal be the fulfillment of human. I mean, it depends on what the goals are, right? I mean, I think those are really important things that there matter are no in goals. terms of. See, what do you there mean? Are no there's goal. no goals. There, there are no collective goals in a free society. Like, if, if in North Korea, the government runs the entire movie industry, and if you don't do what the government says, you get shot or whatever, right? Now, yeah. it's sort of like saying, well, how will propaganda be run? 
if the government gets completely out of the movie industry? Well, it won't be propaganda anymore. And so what are the central plans and goals of society? How is society going to be run? How is it going to function? doesn't matter. When you have a free society, everybody is pursuing their own individual goals. Now, they may come together for collective projects, and they certainly will come together for you know, the bond raising of the Amish household or whatever. They will get together. But there's no central planner anymore, and it's a tough thing to get your head around. There's nobody sitting there saying, well, I think society should go like this. And I don't think society is working as well as it should be over there. So I'm going to go in and fix it. And there's no one like that. This power doesn't exist. You can reason with people. You can make your case. You can give charity. You can organize people as much as you want voluntarily. But there's no one directing anything from a central planning standpoint. And I get that entirely. But you can't. there is going to be a form of organization if there isn't a state. And, and I, it what doesn't have to have the aspects of a state. It, it doesn't have to have monopoly. You know, the, have the monopoly use of, of force. It wouldn't have. It wouldn't have to have that. But there is going to be organizations. There are going to be social and economic interactions, and those those will have to abide by a certain set of at least not necessarily rules per se, but a certain sort of organizational. Uh, structure and they will have uh they will have common ways of dealing with one another. i mean the, the idea i'm getting at is is that you while advocating for anarchism which i agree with at the same time advocate for this kind of capitalism you know sort of free market capitalism and so it would seem to me that if if you were in support of an anarchist system, not so one that doesn't involve a coercive state, you would still in in a system that didn't have that state advocate for a capitalist mode of production, distribution, inter- no. uh, economic interaction. No. No. no, I would do no such thing. Okay, all right. Well, I would do no such thing. Right. However, that's people want. However, people want to. However, people want to set their lives up in a free society is none of my goddamn business. If, if you want to have a syndicalist, uh, anarcho-syndicalist uh, area over there, go, great. Go homestead some land. Go buy some land. Set up your Venus Project flytrap robot cities. Go set up your anarcho I don't care. Like for me to say, well, you, you know, you, you can't have communes. Go have your communes. I don't care. I've got more to do with my life being a, a husband, being a friend, being a philosopher, being a father. I have enough to do with my life without going over and church lady style finger wagging at other people's lifestyle choices. If you want to, all the workers want to get together, grab a factory that's not being used and, and uh, take a loan out and dust it up and promote some egalitarian way of producing. I don't care. I don't, as long as they're not pointing guns at each other, as long as there's not a state pointing guns at everyone, I don't care. Like, do you care what color your neighbor paints his basement? You don't, because he's not using any force to do so. Now, if the government says everyone has to paint their basement puke green, well, suddenly you're going to care because now there's force involved. But I don't care what people do if there's no gun involved. I mean, I might, you know, say I think that you should, you know, might be nice. You know, you may be encouraging, like, you know, you go out and seize the day and achieve your life goals or whatever, but... I don't care if people want to organize themselves according to private property market principles. Fine. I think that's more sustainable, but who cares, right? If, if there's some other experiment people want to undergo, fantastic. You know, the, the beautiful thing about a free society is it allows for all kinds of test tubes of experimentation on the best way to do things. And um, 
you know, as long as you don't force me to live in your commune, I'm not going to force you to live uh, on my street of private property. I mean, I, you know, it's, it's perfectly fine. I, I don't, I can't get engaged or interested enough. The whole point of philosophy is creating a society where you don't need to care about what your neighbors do <laughs> that much. You can, you know, in terms yeah, of like helping out sure. sugar and so on. But I just, this busybodiness that comes from the state is something it's hard to imagine a society being free of. All right, man, I got to move on to the uh, next caller, but I really appreciate your uh, call. It was a, I know it was a bit contentious at times, but uh, I hugely appreciated it and found it enormously fun and valuable. So, uh, Kevin, a real pleasure. And all, right, well, uh, yeah, all my best to your wife and call back in anytime. Let's do it again. Yeah, thanks, man. All right. Up next is John. John wrote in and said, in my current view, I think our society would probably be better off with a lot more spanking. So I'm curious why you think spanking is bad. I would argue that the role of parents from a biological point of view should be to raise competent offspring who will survive and carry on the genes, not to ensure that the children have rights or are free or are pleasantly sheltered from the harshness of reality. That is from John. Hello, John. How are you doing? Hello, Stefan. Nice to meet you. Nice to meet you. Is there anything you wanted to add to that statement? Uh, no. I'll let you uh, take the torch first. You, uh, and what's your family like when you? What was your family like when you were growing up? Uh, well, my parents were divorced. Uh, my mother was very uh, religious. I grew up with her. She tried to indoctrinate. Uh, myself and my sibling into uh, Christianity, and uh, I was a lucky one. I kind of escaped it, um, but uh, I think I was probably spanked a little bit when I was young, but otherwise I was a pretty obedient child, so uh, yeah. And um, what do you think of your mother? I think she's a little bit misguided. Um, but obviously that's a, it's a subjective uh, opinion there. She, uh, she's really involved in, uh, in uh, church stuff like uh, missionary work and helping people around the world, which I kind of view as a misallocation of uh, resources. I think that uh, it would be better off if, uh, if our people cared about our own culture and our own uh, uh, society and uh, so, so on and so forth, rather than trying to... Uh, you know, eliminate poverty around the world, which is not really even feasible, uh, theoretically. And she's in Africa, is that right? Uh, she's, uh, she's just, uh, she's not anywhere right now, but she has been uh, around the world. Okay. You, you might want to turn her on to some of the IQ studies that might help in terms of resource allocation, but that's a topic for another time. And, uh, John, would you say that you love your mother? Uh, well, I'm not really sure what love means. <laughs> I mean, that's a, that's a very difficult word. It's been redefined so many times. It seems like uh, every different party has their own definition of it. Do you know what my definition is? Uh, no, I don't. My definition is that love is the involuntary response, emotional response that we feel towards virtuous people if we ourselves are virtuous. Okay, that sounds kind of like respect. Uh, to me, uh, I'd say I do have some respect for her. Yes, yeah, even though we don't agree on everything. And what do you respect about her? Uh, well, I, I respect some of her personality traits that I like about myself. Obviously, uh, so some of the things that I consider virtues. 
And what are those? Um, well, I think she's a very kind of a strong-willed, uh, she is a very competent person. Um, she just kind of, as I said, misallocates her, uh, her, uh, resources. Um, I'm not sure how, I'm sorry to interrupt right after I asked you, but I'm not sure how strong-willed and competent are virtues. Well, I mean, you can be a strong, I mean, obviously saying she is, but you could theoretically be a strong-willed and competent serial killer, right? I'm not sure how yeah. they would specifically be virtues. Hitler, strong-willed and competent, right? I'm, yeah, yeah. Uh, well, I, I don't know how you define virtue then. Oh, fidelity to truth, uh, courage in speaking your mind, and the willingness to subjugate prejudice to reason and evidence are, I think, pretty strong virtues. Okay. <laughs> well, I'm just telling you the things that I kind of respect in her, and... Um, I don't know if I, uh, if I, if I agree with you on all those virtues, but, uh, that's kind of a subjective thing. Um, so. She knows that you're an atheist, right? She what, sorry? Uh, she knows that you're an atheist? Ah, uh, yes, she does. And, um, how does she respond to that? I think she prays for me. No, I know. I don't mean sentimentally. I mean, <laughs> intellectually. Uh, it's a, it's a topic that we don't really get into, um, I think she just, she just views it as, uh, well, she's, I don't think she's really interested in arguing it. And frankly, I'm not either because it basically comes down to whether you believe in something or not. And it's, uh, very hard to argue someone over beliefs. Um, no, it's not. It's not hard to argue someone out of irrational beliefs unless they're fully committed to their irrationality, right? Right. So she's fully committed to her irrationality. I would say she is. She's fairly old and people tend, uh, to get more committed as they go on. Well, I assume you you were an atheist when you were younger, so saying she's old now, that doesn't, right? When she was younger, she was fully enough committed that she's made it to old age with those beliefs intact, right? Yes. Yes. Right. Okay. Um, so, are you married? Do you have kids? Uh, not yet. I'm planning to have some uh, soon. Wait, are you not married yet or not have kids? Uh, I'm not married, but I'm in a, a long-term relationship. We're considering... And what having... does your... Go, I'll go out on a limb here and say girlfriend. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but what does your girlfriend think of your mother? Um, I don't know. I haven't asked her. What? No, no. Come on. <laughs> Seriously. Long-term relationship. You have no idea what she thinks of your mom. Uh, it doesn't really matter that much to me. I'm not very close with my mother, so. Oh. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I'm shocked. I'm shocked. I'm shocked. I'm just telling you. I'm not a I'm very emotional person, so, uh, yeah. Well, you could be intellectually curious about what she thinks about your mom. <laughs> yeah, I could be. Yeah. Maybe I'll ask her after the show. Um, and um, what do you think of her parents? Uh, I like them. Uh, I like her father more than her mother, I would say. Um, her mother is not the most rational person, but I, uh, I respect her for trying, at least in, uh, in debates. Um, her father I don't is, sure what that means. is much more red-pilled, so I, I kind of like him. Right. And what about your father? Uh, I don't really have a father. I mean, I have one biologically, but we don't really have a relationship. 
when did you last have any kind of relationship? Uh, I think when I was about eight, my parents divorced, and uh, I didn't really see him till sometime in my twenties. So we don't really have, we're kind of estranged. Uh, we don't really. I'm sorry to hear all that. that. Well, I'm very sorry to hear that. So he basically he vanished from your life when you were eight, give or take. Uh, well, uh, I wouldn't blame him at all. I'd say it was my mother who kicked him out. And why did she kick him out? Um, well, they had some disagreements. Hey, that's everyone has disagreements. Yeah. What? Why did she kick him out? Uh, she kicked him out because they had some serious disagreements, I guess, and she felt that it wasn't worth continuing on and that uh, she had better opportunities elsewhere. Do you have an idea what those disagreements were? Yeah, I think it was uh, maybe my father was alcoholic or, or something like that. Something along those lines. Oh, dear. Um, and do you know if he continued his drinking? I think he still does drink, yes. Yes. Oh, so he's been an alcoholic for decades, right? Uh, yes, yes. I'm so sorry. That's. Uh, I wouldn't say that like, he's not a washed up alcoholic or anything, but he does enjoy his drink. And uh, I guess my mother, she went the religious direction and that was really incompatible with with uh, his lifestyle. So, uh, yeah, it is what it is. But, uh, hey, I feel like I'm probably the better off for it. It didn't it didn't ruin me or break me or anything. So, uh, wait, what didn't? You're better off that they split up, but not as well off as if you'd be if they'd stayed together and were happy. Well, in some ways I'm better off. In other ways, I'm not as well off, right? So um, I've grown more internally, probably because of a hostile external environment. And uh, so I think there are definitely some positives that uh, come out of those experiences as long as you don't let them drag you down. And uh, Maybe you disagree. Maybe you think I would have been better off uh, if I had a nice, normal family and I was... Uh... Yes, you would have been better off if you'd had a nice, normal family. But I think statistically, that's that's without a doubt. And also, you said that you're an unemotional person. And I would imagine that if there was a lot of contention in your house when you were growing up, John, that uh, you would have viewed emotions as dangerous and destructive. Because if they were acted out in raging or negative or hostile, horrible or ghastly ways, then emotions would have been an enemy rather than an effective and useful guide in your life. Yep, yep, that's very true. So it kind of robbed you of your passion in some ways, would you not say? No, I, uh, I, I don't, I don't agree with that. <laughs> I think. That so you are, because I mean, just going by what you said, that you're not a very emotional person. Yeah, I mean, okay. Well, what I mean is that I, uh, I guess I can be emotional. It's. It's it's uh it's difficult. I'm not emotional with most people, but I I am emotional with people who I do get close with. Um, but I tend to be more disconnected and more rational and more um, intellectual in general with people that I'm not very close with and with uh, I guess just in general and in, uh, in life. Uh, yeah, I would take issue with the characterization that disconnected from emotions means rational, but that's a topic for. Okay. Another time, I just yep. wanted to mention that. Yep. Um, and you said that your father stayed away because your mother was what? 
she kicked him out, but it's okay. So she kicked him out. Why not have shared custody? Why not have him involved in your life? Uh, did she go for sole custody? Did she use the court system against him? I mean, how did that work? Yeah, she went for sole custody and she kind of, uh, I guess she had a heavy influence on uh, us, basically trying to prevent us from wanting to see our fathers, I think. Um, and so. Oh, so you would want to see your father and she would pressure you not to or try and talk you out of it? I think so, yes. I think that she... Wait, what do you mean you think so? If you were there. <laughs> I mean, if it's not, if you don't know, who does? It was so long ago. <laughs> uh, yes, How old I would, are you? I would say that she kind of steered us in that direction. Um, I did see him a few times, and maybe he's partly to blame, too. I mean, I think he's also a, a difficult person to get along with, um, and I respect a lot of things about him, too, for, you know, for who he is, but he's very hard to communicate with. He also doesn't seem to be very emotional and he's very, uh, he's very kind of, uh, extravagant and, uh, I feel like it's very hard to connect with him on a personal level. So, so I'd say it's a combination. And who of, would you, uh, uh, who would you say that you connect with the most on a personal level? Well, obviously my girlfriend, <clears throat> um, I'd say I have some grandparents that I really connect with as well. Right. Some peers. Although this is the girlfriend, you have no idea what she thinks of your mom. <laughs> yeah. It's kind of an unimportant uh, subject to me. It's not. It's really not. I'm, I'm telling you, it is not an unimportant subject, subject because this is the woman who raised you. And the idea that she didn't have a significant impact on who you are is crazy, right? Oh, yeah. She definitely had a significant impact. But I mean, that doesn't mean I'm somehow beholden to her now or that I have to. I didn't say anything about beholden. I just, <laughs> you said it's not an important subject. And I said it is. It's obviously not okay. the only thing you can talk yep. about, but it's an important subject, right? Yeah, I accept if you If you want to become a parent with someone, you need to figure out what their relationship is like with their parent, because that's going to be the model in general for how they're going to raise their kids, right? Yep. Yeah, I agree. So if she's not asked you about your relationship with your mom, I don't know that she's preparing the nest very well. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Okay, well, I'd rather not, you know, delve too deeply into this personal stuff. I kind of wanted to uh, stick with the question. That's okay. Oh, no, I'm sticking with the question. I'm just taking the long way home. Okay. This is all, this is all about the question, and you'll see why as we go forward. Okay, so we'll go back to the specifics of your question. If you want me to take something more direct, that's it fine. So you were spanked how often? You said a little bit, right? Yeah, I really can't remember because I was uh, I was very young, but I know I was spanked at least sometimes. Yeah, you're not even thirty. I mean, it's not like you're asking. We're calling from last century. Actually, no, <laughs> that would be last century. But it's not like we're asking you go back fifty years or something. Um, were you spanked once a month, once a week, once a year? I mean, just doesn't have to be down to you know triple digit uh, detail but uh, what uh, what's the general pattern i'd say in the range of once a week to once a month okay so that would be let's just say split the difference say once every two weeks okay sure okay so you were spanked about 25 times a year and how long did this go on for when did it start and when did it end uh, this is why it's difficult for me to say, because it was when I was really young. It was before my parents split up, uh, for sure. 
And uh, I guess some people have better memories of their early childhood than others. Uh, I only have, you know, a handful of memories from before that time. So it's... Uh, it's very and that's usually to... because of trauma, right? You know that, right? Yep. Yep. Okay. All right. So a couple of years it went on? Sure. Well, no, don't sure me like I'm, <laughs> you know, you tell me if it's right or wrong. <laughs> well, for the Do you live on this street? Sure. No, no. <laughs> for the sake of argument, we can say it was, it was for a couple of years. Yep. So are you saying it ended when you were eight? So when your dad moved out, you were never spanked again? I don't recall being spanked after that. Okay. So what, like four to eight kind of thing? Yep, sure. Okay. So maybe about a hundred times you were spanked. Yep. Now, is that the... Is that the amount of spanking that you think would be healthy for children as a whole? Or do you think that they should be spanked more than 25 times a year or less than 25 times a year? Well, I think it all depends. Um, I, I, I don't have a particular affinity to okay. uh, spanking. Let's go back to your question. Yep. You said, in my current view, I think our society would probably be better off with a lot more spanking. Correct. So don't give me this fog when I give you a number and you say, well, it depends on if you've got a number, then tell me the number. Is it 25 times a year? Is that outside the bounds of what you consider a lot more spanking? Is it lower than what you would consider a lot more spanking? I mean, you, you the one who used the phrase, I've got a right to ask you what it means in some level of detail. I'm not saying it's got to be a prescription down to the day. But is that is the amount of that you were spanked? Was that more or less or about the same as you think other children should be spanked? Well, I think it's a very subjective thing. And so if you could tell me the amount of spanking in the world right now, then maybe I could give you a number for how much spanking I, should, I think there should be. No, I'm not doing that, John, <laughs> because you came up with a, the phrase, a lot more spanking. Yes, yeah. Society would be probably better off with a lot more spanking. And that is, that's a so You must have some idea how much there is. Like if I say, uh, if you're going to walk in the desert, you should have a lot more water, right? I have some idea how much water you have. And I have some idea how much water you need, and there's a gap analysis I'm putting forward, right? Yep. Okay. But if you don't so know how should far you're society walking spank? In a, you Sorry, go ahead. If you don't know how far you're walking in the desert, and you don't know how many oases there are, and, and so on and so forth, you can't really pin it down to a number, which and is you'd why I take more, wouldn't you? A lot more, right? Yeah. Then you'd need to take more to take yep. into account the variability, right? Okay. So I'll ask you again. You were spanked 25 times a year. Do you think on average society would be better off if children were spanked more about the same or less than 25 times a year? On average. Do you happen to know the, what the average is currently? I have some idea. Could you give me an idea? Yeah, I mean, certainly uh, it is about 80% of children who spank. It's about 60 to 70% among whites, uh, about 80, 85% among um, Asians, and I think 90 to 95% among blacks. It's, uh, I just have the numbers in front of me, stuff, so I'll chime in. 89% for black parents, 80% for Hispanic, 79% for whites, and 73% for Asian parents. Okay, and you know on Good. average, on average how, how frequently they're spanked? Or how many times? This study doesn't have frequency now. Okay, so how about if I we said... Have some indications. We've had some indications. Uh, the studies are not huge, but they're also not tiny. And it was upper middle class parents a couple of times a week, which is obviously a lot more than you were once every two weeks. So how about if I said if, I, if there was 150% of the amount of spanking currently 
we would be better off. So it would be 150% more than the current levels of spanking? Uh, 50% more than the current levels. 50% more, okay. Yes. All right. Now, you, yours once every two weeks. Again, some studies we've looked at, it's, it's three times a week. Um, but let's just say it's once a week. No, actually, was it? Yeah, three times a week. Um, so let's just say it's once a week. So you think it would be better if it was sort of between once a week and you, right? Sure. Yeah, on average. Okay. So you would be happier if your mother had hit you more. You'd be better off. Not happier, better off. Uh, not necessarily myself, but uh, other people would be better off, yes. Who would be better off? Uh, other kins, for example. Other what? Uh, other kins. I'm not sure what other kins is. Other kids? Uh, okay, so other kins are people on the internet who uh, they've, they've kind of taken, uh, you know, kids choosing their gender to the next step, and they're now debating whether they're really cats or wolves or dragons, spirits in human bodies. Um, so it's kind of a, it's kind of a phenomenon. What, what are we talking about? Are we talking about Dragon Veil here? What are we talking about? We're talking about a phenomenon mean, in... There are uh, people... There are okay, I got to Google like this. On, on, uh, okay. It's called Otherkin. Otherkins. All right, hang on a second here. Other Let me Kim. have a look. K-I-M. K-I-M? Yeah. All right. Let me see. And are there a lot of these people? There are a fair number, yes. Well, how many? Uh, I don't know. <laughs> Dude, if you're not prepared for the conversation, we can do it another time. If I can't do anything with a fair number or how many. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know what field you work into, but I like to be a tiny bit precise. Okay. Because this is the first thing you brought up, so I would assume it would be one right. of the larger issues okay. so, so that if, you would be involved with. If I say that there are a lot of other kin, for example, and then if I say that society would be better off with a lot of spanking, then I think that uh, that's consistent uh, because I'm saying that these people should be spanked more and uh, that society would be better off. Yeah, I don't know if we can have this conversation because I don't even know about this other Kim thing and I don't even know how many there are. And so I'm not really, I'll, I'll look it up. I, I've never heard of it, so okay. I can't imagine it's hugely common, but let's have a look. Other Kim. Let's see here. All right. Got nothing. No, I'll try. Is it? O-T-H-E-R-K-I-M? K-I-M, yes. Anyways, I was just using this as no, an example. No, other kin. Yes, I was just using this as an example. Uh, so other kin and, are people who identify as partially or entirely non-human. Some say they are, in spirit if not in body, not human. This is explained by some members of the other kin community as possible through reincarnation, having a non-human soul, ancestry, ancestry or symbolic metaphor. And um, the other, okay, a mailing list in 1990, the Elfenkind Digest. So these are people who believe that they are something other than human. They're like elves or changelings or something like that, right? Yes, they're like animal spirits in the human body. And do you know any of these people? Uh, only through internet, only through the internet, not in, in person. 
Right. So these other people you've never met, you don't know how common they are, they should be hit more. Um, yes. Okay. So the reason I'm using these people as an example is they're a little bit extreme. I'm not sure how large their population is, but uh, in general, I, I feel like... extreme, you mean insane. Yes. I, <laughs> I will go with you there. Yes. In general, I think that our society uh, is very cucked. Uh, and uh, the younger generations in our society, uh, they don't have any, you know, they don't have problems to worry about. They take everything for granted. And so the biggest problems in their world become things like whether they feel like they're a boy or girl, whether they feel like they're a human or uh, a cat, uh, and things like, you know, racism and climate change are kind of the, the issues of the day that they gravitate around. Um, I just feel as though these people are very detached from the actual reality that we're living in. And I think that... Now, do you think... Um, sorry to interrupt. Yep. Do you think that the people who are this disturbed came that way because they were overly reasoned with and respected as children? Uh, I think... In they, other words, it, it, do, you, do you think that these children, if they had been... They, they're this disturbed as adults, that if they were hit more as children, they would be mentally healthier? Is that... That's the theory? Uh, I think that there's a good chance that some of them would be. I think that they were given too much freedom and that they weren't given enough structure and enough... I mean, obviously, their parents failed in other ways, so just spanking them isn't going to solve the problem. But I think that uh, that could shock too some of them. Too much freedom and not enough structure... Sorry to interrupt. But too much freedom and not enough structure, wouldn't that indicate, John, that their parents were neglectful of them? Um, no, I don't mean it in that way. Um, I mean, in a sense, yes, their parents neglected to teach them, you know, about reality to teach them that, for example, you are a human, uh, their parents neglected to teach them that. And so now they're questioning it. Um, their parents neglected to teach them that they were human beings. I can't believe the things well, I say on this show, but would, would you consider that to be a form of neglectful or destructive parenting? Their parents neglected to force that view on them. And that is why... Oh, I don't know that you need to force that view on them. <laughs> well, seriously. You do, right? I, I didn't like... My daughter was like, I'm a tree. And I'm like, no, you're a person. You're not a tree. You're, you're not even an ant. You're just a tree. And if you don't agree with me that you're a person, then, then I'm going to hit you. I mean... <laughs> That wasn't what was needed. I had to actually convince her for quite some time that human beings were, in fact, a kind of animal. She saw that, right? right. Daddy, I'm a tree. I'm an elf. <laughs> no. You know, I think human be like, all organisms are pretty good at knowing what they should have sex with. Because, you see, if they're not very good at knowing what they should have sex with, they tend not to reproduce, which means those genes die off, which is why you don't see a a lot of human beings trying to have sex with trees. I'm sure you'll find a few, maybe in some northern mining towns. But in general, not a lot of human beings banging things unless they're seriously disturbed, like animals in a zoo having sex with okay, dogs. Okay, dogs, fire hydrant, child's leg, tree, I'm sure as well. Uh, but for the most part, uh, animals are fairly good at knowing what they should have sex with, which means that they're pretty good at knowing other members of their own species. Uh, you see this with birds. They don't try and mate with other kinds of birds, at least not too often. You don't see the wren and the uh, buzzard uh, getting it off. And I've looked for that porn extensively. I don't know where that Reddit is, but I'm going to find it one day. Buzzard on wren, porn action. But so, so I don't think that you need to really tell an organism like a human being that they're a human being. Uh, I think that this comes out of significant trauma 
and I would assume that maybe there's some drug use involved that has scrambled the brains, or maybe there's some SSRIs or something like that. I don't think this is... See, here's, a, here's another correlation, right? So if you're going to say more spanking produces better outcomes, more spanking produces better outcomes, then you have a bit of a problem with the spanking data. Now, you didn't know the spanking data, but... Yeah, hold you know, on, hold you, on. Can I interrupt like you? This. I no, just like, let me I just, just like to reply point. to the first part of your argument before you get into the second one. Okay. Which is different. Um, so uh, you have a, you make a very good point, and uh, I agree that uh, you know obviously identifying your own uh, species and the other sex of your own species is probably something that's genetically transferred in organisms. Um, but we could take this argument to uh, the social level because that is not going to be genetically transferred, and so we could say people like liberals, um, for example, or leftists who are often in denial of certain facts about reality um, that their parents were neglectful in failing to teach them, for example, that uh, that might makes right in reality or that everyone is not, in fact, equal. And I think that that's uh, I think that, that that is a key point, because those people tend to support the government because the government, uh, you know, is supposedly on a quest to try to eliminate violence and inequality from life. Okay, so the issue is that if you're going to look at spanking leading to success, you have to explain why blacks who spank the most tend to do the worst and why Asians who spank the least tend to do the best. Yes. But that so how could, would you explain that? That could be for other reasons, for example, in differences in IQ. So then what you're saying is, if that's true, it, and, and not that spanking leads to lower IQ, but lower IQ leads to spanking, then what you're advocating is lower IQ phenomenon for better parenting. In other words, if, if all parents acted as if they had lower IQs, that would be a lot better for everyone. Um, no, I'm, I'm saying that they're completely unrelated. I don't really think that there's a, that there's a causal relationship between spanking and IQ. Okay, you, you're not understanding what I'm saying. So if you're saying that blacks are not doing worse because they spank, but they're doing worse because they have lower IQs, and that results in them doing worse and spanking more, then by saying that children should spank more, you're saying that parents should emulate lower IQ groups, that they should do things that less intelligent groups do in order to improve their parenting. Does that seem anomalous to you? Um. I, I mean, I could see that being a, a, a valid argument. Wait, is it a valid argument or not? I don't know about this. I could see it being, what, in some alternate dimension with a dragon eye? I don't know. <laughs> what does that mean? Okay, is I, it I, a valid argument? Okay. Are you saying that? Are you honestly <laughs> saying that parents should do stuff that less intelligent people do? And for those who want to know more about this uh, spanking in black, you, we've got The Truth About Crime, which is a good presentation that people should check out. I just wanted to mention it here. But do you really? can you think of any other area in life where you you would argue that people should do what less intelligent groups do well sure if, if you're going to argue that intelligence is not the goal that we should be seeking then that would be a valid argument so for example if you wanted to say that blacks are better at for example resisting a tyrannical government because they're more violent and aggressive and they're not just going to roll over and let uh, a government conquer them then you might argue that we should try to emulate blacks to the degree that we need to uh, combat that particular enemy. 
So then by that theory, then, if blacks were very good at resisting government power, then the smallest and most libertarian governments should be in the largest and most concentrated black communities, such as Detroit or Africa. Um, I don't know if that's necessarily true. Um, it is necessarily true. If you're saying that blacks, one part, the theory that blacks would be really good at resisting large government would be proven by concentrations of blacks producing the smallest governments. That's a testable hypothesis is what yep. I'm saying. Yep. And I think in Africa, so you Chicago, would, Washington, Africa, Nigeria, Africa, you might find that. Okay. Africa, um, there are a lot of, you don't know that there are lots of, you think there are a lot of libertarian governments in Africa? Not libertarian, but smaller governments than we have here. Smaller how? We call them more primitive people, but, but that just means that they have less of an organized structure to their society. And that they have a I don't know if you're trolling. I Honestly, I do not know if you're trolling me or not. <laughs> <laughs> I honestly have no idea whether you're trolling me anymore. Like, you, you think there's a lot of small, limited democracy, republic governments in Africa? Is that your... Or, or that, say, South Africa got a lot freer when the blacks took over? I'm not saying that, Somalia they're, I'm not is saying like that a, they have democratic. I mean, I don't know what to say. I'm not saying that they have democratic governments, just that they have smaller governments. Okay. Listen, I, I got to move on to the next caller because honestly, if I don't know whether you're trolling me or not, I don't know how to continue okay. the conversation. But it doesn't matter what the outcomes are fundamentally. It's the same thing I said to the last guy. It doesn't matter whether children are better or worse. Um, what, what matters is um, that we don't initiate the use of force. And it doesn't matter whether it comes from the state or whether it comes from your open hand towards your child. Uh, both are indications of the initiation of the use of force. And the state is a shadow cast by the raised fists or open hands of the parents. So if you use force against your children and that gives you authority, those children grow up to view those who have the most force as having the most authority in the world. And that is the state. So it doesn't matter fundamentally uh, whether things adapt or don't adapt and so on. But I'll tell you why I was asking about your mom. Um, yep. And sorry, I won't be able to take a reply on this, but I'll tell you why I was asking about your mom. See, I have a theory. <laughs> I have a theory. Uh, and my theory goes something like this. If you have high quality people around you, then you don't have any difficult explanations to give to your children. And if you have people around you who go against your values in any kind of fundamental way, then you have a tough time explaining that to your children. Now, if you don't have the integrity to live by your beliefs, in other words, if you keep people in your circle of love who are diametrically opposed to your values in some ways, that's perfectly fine. It just means you don't really want to live your values. You're kind of a hypocrite when it comes to your values. If you value reason and evidence and you really love having people in your life who scorn, attack, and denigrate or undermine your capacity for reason and evidence or somehow dead set against it and so cowardly that you don't even bring it up anymore, as you say, you don't talk about it with your mom anymore, even though she's praying for you. So if you don't want to live by your values and you're kind of a hypocrite, which is the technical definition, right? You have values and you accept the opposite in your life. That's fine, obviously, I mean, everyone can do what they want, but if you are living as a fundamental, ethical, or epistemological hypocrite, then you're going to have a tough time explaining that to your kids. And I think that the people who are living more hypocritically generally are the ones who need to or are drawn to use force against their children the most, because the growing curiosity and empiricism of children is going to paint some pretty uncomfortable pictures 
right? So the typical example is the mom who hits her son saying, don't hit. Well, that's hypocritical, right? And so those who are living lives of hypocrisy tend to be those who are first to reach for the fist when it comes to interpersonal conflicts where they can get away with it, right? They don't tend, generally tend to do it with big burly bartenders, but they'll do it with a four-year-old kid because they can hit and get away with it. So all of the frustration and self-hate that comes from having values and then allowing the opposite out of cowardice, the opposite manifestation of those values in your circle of love, that self-hatred, that self-contempt, that hypocrisy generally is acted out in aggressive ways against children who are going to look at you and say, what the hell? What the hell are you doing? You say you value reason and evidence, and here you are with this you know, crazy religious person in your life uh, who's going to pray for you, and you don't even speak up for yourself. You don't even say anything. You don't stand up for yourself. You don't stand up for what you believe in. So why the hell would I have any respect for you as my mentor, as my teacher, when I continually watch you be a coward with your values with those other people around you? Why would I take your authority when you don't even have any authority with yourself? When you claim to have these values, you don't actually have these values. You just have them for show. You just have them like a brooch. You have them like an ornament. And then you allow people who thoroughly and embody, in an embodied way oppose your values around in your life. And you claim to love them, even though it's impossible to logically love the opposite of what you treasure. It is impossible to logically love the opposite of what you treasure. And you say to me, this is what you treasure, science, reason, evidence, thought, integrity, courage. And then you're around these crazy religious people and you don't even speak up and you let them wash all over you. Like a wave, a tsunami on a sandcastle, you let them wash all over you. And you don't fight back and you don't say anything and you just sit there with a sick grin on your face, taking these waves of crazy and not standing up for yourself at all. So why the hell would I have any authority for you? Why would I have any respect for you? Why would I recognize any authority if this is how you treat yourself and this is how you treat your values? And how, how can you say that you love me if you also love somebody who embodies the opposite of your values? Now, if that is your relationship with your child, and deep down, if you're a hypocrite, that is going to be your relationship with your child, I believe, then what's going to happen is you're going to run out of authority and credibility with your child very, very, very quickly. And then you still have to exercise some, quote, dominion over your child. And if you can't do it because they respect and treasure your opinion because you act in a forthright, courageous uh, way with integrity, what are you going to do? Well, you got to pull out the fist. You cannot be the son of integrity that their natural plants are going to grow towards, so you got to go in with the weed whacker. You cannot have them respect you because you're not acting in a way that allows you to even respect yourself. And so, like all cowards who cannot generate self-respect, all you can do is generate fear. And that's what you do. And that's why you want to be hit, to be hitting your kids. And that's why you want, you think everyone else should be doing it too, because maybe you think everyone allows for the opposite of their values to be embodied in their inner circle of love. But that's not true. Not everyone does that. I do not need to raise my voice with my daughter. I do not need to hit her. I have never put her in a timeout. I don't do any of that stuff. Because I act with integrity in my life, and so I have authority with her because she sees me act with integrity. But if you have in your inner circle of love those who are the opposite of what you claim to value, you will be revealed as a hypocrite to your child. You will be revealed as somebody who has no authority, and therefore you're going to need to reach for something else to get them to do what you want to do. It's either going to be bribery or it's going to be punishments physical punishments, fear punishments, and most likely a combination 
of both. So that's my, I was asking, that's why I was asking about your family. And that's how I absolutely knew, given that you were drawn towards spanking, I knew beyond a shadow of a doubt before coming into the conversation, and it was only confirmed in the conversation, that you had people you claimed to love who had the opposite values that you claimed to respect. And that is why you like the hitting. So thanks very much for your call. I appreciate it. It's very illuminating. Let's move on to the next. All right. Up next is Brandon. Brandon wrote in and said, am I deluded for believing there is another sentient entity more powerful than humans? In the same way that lab mice are oblivious to their captivity and experimentation, is it reasonable to consider a similar environment might have been constructed for humans? The infinitesimally small intelligence of mice relative to human IQ prevents mice from conceptualizing their captivity. Oh, I don't know. Infinitesimally small <laughs> brains of mice. Have you seen YouTube comments lately <laughs> or at any time? No, I'm just kidding. All right. No, so it's a good question. So the idea is there's some giant consciousness out there that has the same relationship to us that we have to mice. Is that right? Right, right. There's there's a little bit more to the a little bit more to the question. Um, just the kind of expense. I don't know if Mike wanted to. I'll just finish it off real quick. In the same okay. way, humans would be unable to conceptualize their captivity in an environment constructed by a high intelligence that dwarfs their own. Furthermore, since morality is a product of our capacity for reason, it would follow that a more intelligent entity might possess a higher, if not abstractly different, level of morality. That's from Brandon. Hey, Brandon. Hey, I just wanted to. I, I wanted to say it's um, it's an honor to be on your show. Um, since we last talked, I, I went through and I listened to like all of the audio, the free audiobooks you provided on your site, and those are wonderful. And I've um, been able, I've derived so much knowledge and wisdom from your work, and I just want to say I really appreciate that. Um, and to to have this position of um, talking to you on the show is a real honor. Um, so I, I want to start. Well, thank you. And and if if like Brandon, you find great value in what he jokingly calls free. Please go to freedomainradio.com slash donate to help us out. But, uh, but go ahead. So uh, do, do you want to explain more about the question? Do you want me to pepper you? Or do you want me to rant? What's your pleasure? Um, so it's just kind of like a, a question I've been thinking about recently. Um, as I study into like artificial intelligence um, and the, the developments of like um, modern technologies, that this thought kind of crosses my mind several times that um, being an atheist, um, I find that my reason um, and like logic kind of pushes me in the direction that if some other intelligent entity were to evolve beyond humans, you know, kind of like in the question, like in the same way that we have control over um, less evolved species such as mice and we manipulate their environment and experiments and et cetera, it would stand to reason, at least to me, that an entity that he had evolved more intelligence than humans would possess the same sort of capacity to manipulate human environments and, you know, we would be, we would be like mice in that way. You mean like buying voters with welfare? <laughs> right, right. Um, Is that what you mean? <laughs> um, I, I think I think I'm more pointing in the realm of like if there was an alien race that developed on like another planet or something, um, and if it were to develop in the same sort of way that our species on Earth have developed, or even just intelligence in general, if it amassed some like uh, like artificial intelligent entity that it would have sort of control over our reality. Um, and we wouldn't know it. We would be the fish and the fish, the fish who can't see the fishbowl. But why would they want to do that? Um, I, I don't know exactly why they would want to. I, I could. I think we could point to the question and say, well, why do humans do experimentations on like on mice and such, or or lower species? Like, why do why do humans have zoos? Um, 
And I think it could be answered like enjoyment or research or, or whatever. And I think that same sort of answer could be applied to the motivations of a higher intellect. Well, no, because human beings can enter into contracts, right? We don't we don't have zoos for those who can enter into contracts, right? And human beings would be able to into that we we are moral agents and we're able to enter into contracts. And so I don't know that there would be much value in putting human beings in zoos, right? So, I mean, the basic, and I've said this before, but the only way space aliens are going to come is if they're free market, right? It has been 47 years since we landed on the moon, right? How many of us have gone into space? You know, 47 years after the Wright brothers, there were already jet engines or close to it, right? Actually, no, there were jet engines, the ME-262 in the Second World War. And so what was that? That was less than... Yeah, that was less than uh, 50 years. So less than 50 years in the free market of airplanes took us from the Wright brothers to jet engines. And cross, and Amelia Earhart was halfway through that, and you could cross the, um, you could go around the whole world, I think, if you got some in-flight refueling. So 47 years of the free market doing airplanes got us jet engines. Now, 47 years of the government running the space program, you know what, a couple of hundred people have gone to space. And you can't get a seat on a spaceship for love or money. And so there's simply no way that we're ever going to get into space in any way that makes any sense or is even reproducible or profitable as long as the government is running all this kind of crap, right? So the only way that you're going to end up with aliens visiting us is if they come in a mall. It's going to be, you know, that's what it's going to be. This, this giant spaceship is going to come down and everyone's going to be terrified, like, oh no, it's Arthur C. Clarke devil time. They're going to take us over. They're going to turn us into batteries. They're going to eat us. You know, this is what people think, right? Right. And, um, oh my God, what's going to happen? There's going to be this big bay door that opens. There's going to be a little fountain. There's going to be some stunted little trees in the middle. There's going to be elevator music. And there's going to be a bunch of squid tentacle vendors offering us jetpacks. That that's that's the only space aliens are going to sh- show up as eBay. That that's that's how they're going to they're going to be like the Sky Mall of Infinity, like that magazine. I think it's gone defunct now, right? That that used to be on planes that you could buy like really weird shit to put in your garden. <laughs> it's a zombie, not really. I can't imagine why they went out of business. Anyway, so number one, it's going to be a mall. Number two, they're going to take Bitcoin. <laughs> Bitcoin. Bitcoin um, is the way to go. So, yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, so they're not going to come and put us, they're going to experiment on us and they're not going to, because well, we're going to have stuff that they want too, I would well, assume, right? Not just our gizzards, which they'd like to fry out. But so we've always had this idea that all these space aliens that are going to come and take us over. But the reality is the space aliens are just a metaphor or our unconscious analogy for governments, right? Um, and just like killer robots are. Oh, look, it's a it's a machinery that we we created to serve us, and now it rules us. I'm sure I'm not talking about the state. Yeah, that's right. It's the Terminator <laughs> seeking a retroactive abortion. Yeah, okay, got it. So aliens are going to come because they want to trade. Aliens aliens are going to come because they want to study. Aliens are going to come because they want to learn, because they're curious, and because they're free. You know, I don't think there's ever been, and of course there wouldn't be, although it would be a great movie, Space Alien. And I did this um, Space Aliens from Luxembourg years ago. It's a short story which um, is on the internet, uh, which you should check out. But um, 
If space aliens came, they wouldn't blow up the White House. Hi, uh, hi, uh, hi, hi, government. They wouldn't blow up the White House because they wanted to take over. They'd blow up the White House because they'd want us to be free. Oh, look, there's a smoking crater where the Federal Reserve used to be. Freedom, right? And so we're nothing to fear from space aliens because telling you, if their government, if the governments are running their space program, they're barely ever going to get off planet. And, and if the governments aren't running their space programs, it's because they've got an anarcho-capitalist society and they're going to come and help us out in some very foundational ways. Come help us. So I don't think that there's any, I have nothing to fear from superior intelligence, whether human or alien. And uh, certainly with the alien stuff, um, the barrier to getting to space is the free market. And if they haven't figured that out, we're never going to get a visit. So well, so yeah, this, of course, there are, I, I have no doubt that there are sentient entities out there far more powerful uh, than human beings. The idea that we're the only life form is inconceivable. I mean, and um, uh, so, uh, you know, they, and even if they've had a thousand or two thousand years on us, which in the universe is billions of years, is uh, barely a, an eyelash uh, uh, on an ocean, um, we're not going to have a huge amount in common, right? If you go and visit a, a planet and they're 2,000 years back, I mean, you can help them out, but you're not going to have a lot in common with them, and I'm sure it would be the same if they're 1,000 or 2,000 years. I mean, even if you think, go back 300 years. Um, so, you know, this idea that there's a federation, I've always sort of found this kind of funny, that in in, in these space movies, there are always these civilizations, and for reasons of, of battle excitement, they're always kind of closely matched. They always have very similar technology and that's never going to happen <laughs> we're never ever going to meet another um race out there that's even remotely close to our own level of development because it's such a tiny tiny thin thin little line it's a tiny crack in the giant wall of time uh, and if you're on one side or the other i mean you've got very little in common with each other so that's another thing that's sort of important to remember but yeah i've no doubt that there is a, there are really cool intelligences out there i just don't think that we have uh, anything to uh, to fear from them. Well, um, especially like given your your background in, in um, computer programming um, and and the like, would you would you support the claim that um, military research likely has technology that you know I don't know what number of years, but is is vastly more advanced than what you could you know access as a consumer. Um, that you know some black box military funded you know research facility potentially could be let's say developing an artificial intelligence um, and given that there's a lot of well-renowned scientists that have been predicting that we will have you know fully sentient AI by the year like 2030 um, I think it's kind of probabilistic um, that if indeed these government facilities have been funding you know black box research whether it's China Russia or the United States into developing an AI and weaponizing an AI, then it would, at least to me, make sense that maybe this AI would be far more advanced than we could even, you know, kind of conceive of. Um, and by that nature, like this, this I think would be the real sort of like intellect that would dwarf humans. I'm, I'm not particularly concerned about aliens, but I, I definitely see the possibility of an AI already existing somewhere you know, on Earth um, and having the power that we can't even fathom. Well, what power? Um, the the power of of having um a, a capacity for intelligence that you know that humans can't can't match. No, um, no, I get that. It's super smart, but what's its power? Well, it would it would 
be able to basically anticipate any human move. It would have the power of accessing all of human knowledge on the internet. It would have the power of being involved in the financial systems as you've got hedge fund managers trying to develop AI algorithms, like AI trading algorithms. I mean, it would have, we, we depend on AIs in order to live. Like our, our phones are essentially really um, modest versions of AI, our computers, our technology. No, no, no. no. Oh, man. Uh, Siri. Okay, what about a phone as AI? Um, so like Siri, Apple Siri or, or Cortana, Google's version, those are um, artificial narrow intelligence. They, you can ask it a question. It no. can respond with a very, it's, 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 it's a sort of AI, I think. No, it's not AI. I'm sorry. I think it's not. I mean, I'm no expert on this and I'm, you know, people want to call in and call me an idiot, but I do know something about computers and I was a programmer for many, many, many years. Okay. They're not AI. It's okay. input output. That's all it is. Okay. Um, okay. Well, I mean, it's, it's complex input output, right? but right. it's not, it, all it is, is ju- it's just taking information uh, parsing it out to text and looking up an answer. What is the weather? Oh, I think I'm going to go look up the weather. That's not artificial intelligence. Right, um, right. When it, started, when it starts to ask you questions, <laughs> then <laughs> maybe we're starting to think about it. But uh, yeah. no. you, know, you know the Turing test, right? Which is you're, you're, you don't know whether you're chatting with uh, a uh, machine or not, right? There's no way. The Siri is nowhere close to that. I mean, it's a fun thing to play with, I guess. I've never tried it, but... Um, it's uh, it's nothing that um, is close to any like uh, any human human being. Like I would, I'm not having these conversations on this show and wondering whether I'm talking to Siri or a human being. If that makes sense, <laughs> right? Of, yeah, of, of course. I, I I brought those up as an example to to illustrate um, the sort of power that an AI would have um, because maybe we're not dependent on AI today because those might not qualify as AI. But certainly, an AI would have. Um, a power to influence these technologies, and, and with that regard, it would have significant power over over humans. Well, look, the AI, I, I don't know the degree to which it would be, I mean, it's a hobby, I would be interesting to try and program human intelligence. I don't think anyone's anywhere close. A, a computer is nothing like a, a human mind. A computer, like fundamentally, it's a square box and a round hole, right? I mean, it's different dimensions. A human mind is not just a really fast computer. You know, like there's this old joke about, I've got a computer so fast it can complete an infinite loop in three and a half seconds, right? I mean, (laughs) it's not not anywhere close. Um, A a human mind is is a... uh, an intensely creative, multi-part system, layers and layers of, you know, the old lizard brain, what I call the post-monkey, buggy-as-hell beta expansion pack called humanity. I mean, it's, it's evolution. It's, uh, it's randomized through, um, to some degree, it's randomized through um, uh, mutations and through gene mixing from, from your parents and all that. Uh, it's got the the unconscious, which can, in certain tasks, be thousands of, my, of times faster than the conscious mind. It's got dreams that inform you. It's got instincts. Uh, it's got the second brain in the gut, which has a huge number of nerve endings and does actually function as, you know, I've got a gut sense. I've got a gut feeling. I've got a bad feeling. That is your brain in your belly, which is also very perceptive and very powerful. So the idea that a calculator of, of infinite speed can somehow replace 
hundreds of thousands of years, if not, of course, billions in total of evolution uh, is is not. It, it's not the same thing. And I think that there'll be ways to emulate it. Of course, I mean, you can you can emulate what a human being does with complex enough programming, which is kind of, I guess, where you're coming through with the Siri thing. But it's still absolutely nothing like a human being. How do you, let me just, I mean, people who say we're going to get AI, my question is, dreams are something that is very important for learning. And we know that because when people don't dream, they don't learn very well. And so if you're a programmer, how do you choose which simulation (laughs) to run at night when your robot is sleeping? How do you choose which analogies, which metaphors? And, you know, I've done a bunch of dream analyses on this show, which people can listen to as well, which are really powerful and really cool. And how are you going to choose which dreams your robot? You know, that old thing, uh, do, do androids dream of electric sheep? It's sort of a, it's a very sort of fundamental question. So I don't know that there's a huge amount of free market value in um, creating intelligence that mimics human beings because you can just screw wait nine months and get one for free. Right? <laughs> so I don't know that it's, you know, it's hugely great to, to do it. Um, so there is, a, and, and the, the, if you're saying the military is going to do it, I mean, the most complex, gruesome, hard to imagine project would be trying to use a calculator to mimic, a, a super fast calculating scenario to, to mimic a human brain. And um, let's talk about the military and its efficiency. The F-35 Joint Strike photo pro, uh, uh, Fighter Program. Um, it's too complex. It's too reliant on high-tech sensors and software. And at $400 billion for development and procurement, far too costly. It's already years behind schedule and billions and billions of over budget. The lifetime program cost for the plane is expected to surpass $1 trillion dollars. Uh, the, um, Actually, they've the estimated the national... that it's going to be 1.5 now. <laughs> it's gone yeah, up. You know, just, you know, because <laughs> that's a rounding error, right? Half a, billion, <laughs> half a trillion dollars. The study by the National Security Network states the jet, the most expensive weapon system in U.S. history, will not only be outmaneuvered and outgunned by Russian and Chinese aircraft, but will also be limited in range and its stealth capabilities will be easily overcome. Actually, it's really cool. They can actually... Um, find these airplanes over water just by saying, Marco! And then the plane replies, Polo, fire! The F-35, which comes with an estimated $1.5 trillion price tag over the life of the program, has faced numerous hurdles and delays. Most recently, there have been concerns over its computer system's vulnerability, and Chinese hackers have possibly stolen classified data related to the project because they couldn't find it on Hillary Clinton's server. The F-35's construction has continued and it is being manufactured across multiple states in different countries. For better or worse, it's going to be the U.S. and Allies' main warplane for decades to come. Despite the setbacks, the F-35 program is continuing and the Navy, Marines and Air Force are all busy testing their version of the aircraft. But just because the military is sticking to the F-35 doesn't mean it isn't acutely aware of the plane's myriad problems. During the live flight testing in 2014, the Department of Defense's Office of the Director Operational Test and Evaluation compiled a report on the progress and failures of the F-35 program. Here are some of the key pro- programs problems that the Pentagon identified. So, it's been a dozen years, about a trillion dollars of taxpayers' dollars, and they have software delays, F-35B fuel tank redesign, lightning protection, because, you know, apparently when you fly a plane, there can be lightning, flight control problems. Actually, I'm sure they can just patch those. They probably, I mean, it's just a plane. What do you need flight control for? Helmet display issues. <laughs> can you see? 
the Automatic Logistics Information System, Alice. Um, so, uh, you know, I, I'm not going to put a lot of money on the military coming up with artificial intelligence uh, anytime soon if they're having trouble with an airplane. I mean, yeah, that's fair. Um, you know, I, you know, and that's, and that's kind of why I started my question with like, am I deluded for believing? And that's that's kind of how I framed well, it. Why does it matter? Well, because I wanted. Why do you care? Because I mean, I, I mean, I, I strongly believe that. I mean, I, I think that AI already exists, um, and I think I think the military has developed. Where? Oh, you think the military has it somewhere? Maybe if it's not the U.S., maybe if it's China, because I think the AI is is comparable to like uh, the Manhattan Project, like the, the the capacity to use a nuclear bomb was devastating for for warfare, and I think we're you know that we're kind of on the track for World War Three sometime. What does the, it do? It would. It what would, does it do? It, like it would be able to like hack and manipulate every computer. It would be able. To, I don't. I don't know all of its capacities. Like, but it you know an AI would be able to. Okay, so much of our of our information comes from like mainstream media, and we and we see today in mainstream media how there's kind of this brainwashing going on from the polit- the politicians, right? So in my mind, it would make sense if you had like an AI and you programmed it to gain control of your citizens through nonviolent means. It could, like a chess player, figure out the you know 200 moves in advance to figure out exactly what information to display to its population inadvertently that they would be programmed into doing whatever you chose them that you wanted them to do. I mean the the sort. Well, of- hang on, hang on, hang on, hang on. Are you saying that somehow functioning suboptimally at the moment? I mean, isn't the population pretty much uh, staring at the state growing, <laughs> saying, ooh, pretty fireworks going off in my gonads. This can't be a problem. Bye-bye, children. Ooh, this is nice. Is there something cool on TV? Hey, where are my pants? Right? I mean, isn't the population already kind of stunned and sheep-like? No, I, I, I agree with you. I um, I brought that up as an example to, to illustrate, like, one, one area that it could be used to further um, subjugate citizens. And I, I think that will... To the, to the to the detriment of humanity be one one case where it would okay but but hang on okay so i mean i just from a from a human livestock management perspective let me just let me just ask you this right so you're some guy in charge of the state right okay and it's already working pretty well right i mean You've already got government schools, you've got the media, you've got academia, you've got propaganda coming out of every pore. You have the whole political process and you've got people doing exactly what you want them to do for the most part, right? I mean, they might fight over who's in charge, but they never fight about whether somebody should be in charge, right? Right. I mean, you could even hear this from the first caller who right. was, uh, you know, an anarchist, he said, but it's like, yes, but how are we going to organize society? It's like, it's hard to let go of this stuff, right? Right. And so... You already have a system that's working very well. Would you really want to turn that over to a computer? You know, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. And the computer might screw something up because you wouldn't be able to experiment on your whole population until you actually threw the switch, right? Right. So I think it would be pretty ambitious. Like the government has been growing insanely, insanely. You know, like it took until George W. Bush in 2008 to go from $0 to $10 trillion in debt. You know, he started with $5 trillion, He ended up with $10 trillion in debt. Obama went from $10 trillion to $20 trillion in debt. So it took eight years to go from the birth of the republic in 2008. <laughs> it took another seven or eight years 
to get. Like the government is growing so much, so fast and with so little foundational opposition that I don't know that you'd need a big AI program to make the, the people obedient. I mean, you already got it. It's called government schools and the media and academia. It would be a waste to, and it would be risky because, you know, what if it got wrong? And what if you had some way of programming the population that could itself be hacked and unprogrammed? It would just be too risky. Why would you bother? You've already got something that works. Right. That makes sense. I, I mean, from a, from a speculative perspective, I, I would say, well, maybe someone would believe that they could control it and, and have it not go wrong or, or use it as a, against their enemy, like America using it against China or something and, and try to control their population. Um, I mean, if the government, the government wants to continue to grow and it's, and it's gotten control over its citizens, it may want to try to get control of Russia or China or Europe citizens, right? And that might be one. But it already has control of it. The American government already has control over the citizens of China <laughs> because, because it can't pay its debts. Yeah. It's already stripped, you know, China, China, the Chinese government have bought all these U.S. bonds, propping up the U.S. bond market. I can't pay this stuff back. It's either going to be a hard or a soft default. So they're already, they're already extracting all the value from the Chinese, right? The government has taken real Chinese money and handed it over to the Fed in return for the Americans buying stuff from the Chinese people. I mean, they already have control over these other populations. Um, so I, I don't know. I just don't see the government can't do it because it's too complicated a task. I mean, governments can't fill potholes for God's sakes. What what on earth can they do? Now, with one exception, that the um, the uh, you know if they if they immediately steal people from the private sector, there's a kind of work ethic and a momentum that goes on there. But for the most parts, government are becoming less competent rather than more competent. And um, so I I wouldn't worry about governments getting some. Super matrix brain, brain scanning AI. I just, um, you know, I, they're they're not that motivated as far because they're already getting everything they want. Why would they need to invent some other way of getting it? Um, one other motivation that just kind of popped into my head was um, a lot of the the technology that that military has developed, or any 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 area for that matter, like military or private. We I just kind of like want to make a blanket um, industry there. Um, the that technology emerged because of an increase in intelligence. As we, you know, as we train smarter STEM people, and as people pursue, you know, we get like physics developments, and we get an understanding of flight and and, and space travel. You know, all this, all these different elements are a result of higher intelligence. So, if you created a machine that improved itself recursively, so that it became more and more and more intelligent, you could potentially utilize that machine to help you figure out new technologies to develop. So, I mean, there's 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 definitely more motivations to this beyond citizen control or, or anything with that regard, but um, medical... You mean sort of predicting the future? Um, maybe not so much predicting the future, but like um, medical regards. There's a lot of... Um, there's not maybe... It's maybe not AI, but it's it's in the direction towards AI in the medical field of um, like identifying cancer in patients where you have a doctor because humans are prone to error um, to, to, to scan and try to look for a cancer may, may miss it. But if you have a computer which is more efficient and, and doesn't get tired, it doesn't miss detail... Um, would be, you know, have a higher precision at diagnosing certain... Um, yeah, but that's not AI. I mean, if, if, that, if, if, if computer diagnostics are AI, then my GPS is Magellan, you know? <laughs> right. It's, it's I, not, that's not AI. That's cool stuff that it can do. Right. It's, it's, but that's it's, like saying a dog can smell cancer, therefore it's an oncologist. That's fair. And, and that's why I said maybe it's not AI, but it's definitely on, on track to that. It's more sophisticated than a calculator, but it's less sophisticated than, you know, an AI. But... The, the, the point I want to make is that it's not more sophisticated than a calculator. It, it's still the binary gates, the on-off switches that go on in the depths of computers exactly the same 
Uh, they're just faster and, and there's more of them. But it's exactly the same. A multiplicity of grass does not make a human being, right? A, a, a human beings are not little binary switches that go on and off in the way the computers do, uh, that are perfect static state and so on, right? Uh, and so when you take something that's not even close to a human brain and then you multiply it, it doesn't become a human brain. Do, do you know what I mean? Like if right. you if you put a whole bunch of diamonds together, you don't suddenly get a forest. You know, you just get a lot of diamonds, right? So you get a lot of binary switches. But imagine being a sketch artist with a canvas and somebody's trying to play a video game. <laughs> and and there's no graphics card. You just you're, you're erasing and redrawing. I'm turning left. Okay, hang on. Let me erase. Let me redraw. I'm turning left again. Fire. Kaboom. Okay. Here goes the bullet, right? It's. I mean, you, you get that it would take you like all day to play like a tenth of a second of a video game, right? Right. You, you, it's not like, okay, well, we just get more sketch artists, right? And suddenly we've got a perfectly 3D rendered Castle Wolfenstein recreation, right? right. Uh, and so it's not, it's not the case that it's like AI. Like the moment that the lead characters in an animated movie start demanding unionization and a green room, I don't mean the actors, I mean the actual physical, uh, physically represented characters, it, it's not AI. And so it's not like computers are better at remembering than human beings. Because for us, memory is creative. I don't know if you're, when you get older, I swear to God, like I think back of things in my childhood, I'm pretty sure that they happened. <laughs> <laughs> pretty damn sure that they happened. But it could also be something that I saw in a movie that I thought about a lot. It could also be a story I was told and I wasn't even there, but it was told to me so many times and maybe I dreamt about it five times and now it's 40 years later or 45 years later, and I'm like, yeah, I'm pretty sure. I mean, there's a few things I know for sure happened, and it's quite a lot of things, actually, a pretty good memory about my childhood. But I can't, it, 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 our memory is a movie. Our memory is a um, an embellished fictional selective account. It's a documentary, and documentaries always come with bias, and they select, and they, I'm just doing this making the murderer, uh, making a murderer thing, right? So I'm sort of really down with this kind of stuff, right? And so you can't even get a sketch artist to, to have you play Pong, right? <laughs> Let alone, you know, virtual reality or something like that. So saying that computers are like artificial intelligence is like saying that porn is a great way to make babies with a computer. It's just not, <laughs> it's a simulation at best. Okay. I mean, that's definitely, I, I, I'm not an expert on this. So I, you know, I'm not really in a position to, to disagree with any cr credibility. I don't, I don't know. Um, but it, No, like, can I tell you something though, man? Sure. You, you liked me. You, you liked me up until this point, which is fine. It's not my job to stay liked. You like stuff that you can't get in trouble for in philosophy. And I get this a lot with callers, right? Because they, and, and they call in with stuff. It's fun to talk about. It's sort of interesting. But you're not going to get into any trouble. And I don't mean with the state or anything, or the police, with other people with this topic, right? Like if you bring up something like spanking or the non-aggression principle or the law is an opinion with a gun or the against me argument that I've talked about all the way back to my first big speech in New Hampshire and so on. If you bring up stuff that is really controversial, <laughs> that is really challenging for people in which people can actually have an effect on, that's tougher emotionally than, ooh, I wonder what could happen with AI in the future. You know what I mean? And again, I'm not saying you have to do that all the time. What I'm saying is that you have to be careful 
I think, just be aware of it. Like, if you're going to say, I'm going to get into philosophy and all these opinions for myself, all these beliefs for myself, I'm going to stand the non-aggression principle, UPB, the gun in the room, the uh, the coma test, the non, the, you know, the, the, um, against me argument, I'm going to know all of that stuff and I'm consciously not going to bring it up with everyone around me. That's fine. You know, all is permitted with self-knowledge. But my concern a little bit, and I'm just running over this to double check myself, I'm not saying this is true, but my concern might be a little bit like this, that you're going to stuff that is kind of cool and interesting, doesn't really have much to do with anything. You can't do much to change it. You can't do much to affect it. And it doesn't, doesn't have anything to do with anyone's lives. And, and even if it is at some point in the future, there's nothing we can do about it anyway. So I'm concerned that you're kind of wandering off actionable, challenging stuff in philosophy and just getting into, you know, cool spliff-based what-if scenarios. I, I, I see where you're coming from, and I, and I really appreciate that. Um, in, in terms of kind of bringing it back into philosophy, if it does, if, if in fact AI does exist now or it exists in the future, then, and if it is an AI that kind of is similar to a human brain, then, you know, monkeys don't have philosophy. Humans have philosophy, and, and we have philosophy because our, our evolution, our brain allowed us to do that, our prefrontal cortex, right? Like that gave us the capacity to develop philosophy. So, in my mind, if an AI was, you know, kind of higher, better than humans in terms of thinking, then maybe it might develop, you know, some sort of like it might it might help us come reconcile some issues in philosophy and, and um, the divergence between like um, uh, uh, Kantian ethics and um, there's a, there's a spectrum of no no it won't no no. It won't. <laughs> no and this has been dealt with by Douglas Adams in um, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Right, there's this giant computer that um, figures out the big problems in philosophy, and the philosophers all disagree with it, so nobody gets any. <laughs> Look, we already have the answers to philosophy. They're, they're already clear. I mean, they're not like, complicated, right? I mean, nobody has to go into Kantian ontological blah, 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 blah right, in order right, to solve right. philosophy. All we have to do is live the philosophy we teach our two-year-olds. Don't hit. Mm. Don't hit. Don't steal. Don't grab stuff that's not yours. Don't hit people, and when you're a little older... Keep your promises. That's all there is. That's property rights, non-initiation of force, and contract law. That's all it is. Don't hit, don't steal, and keep your word. That's, that's all there is. So philosophy is ridiculously not complicated. Now, proving it all, okay, that's a little different. But in terms of us actually accepting it, you know, if we expect a two- or three-year-old to accept it, it can't be that hard for a 40- or 50-year-old to accept it, right? It's just the consistency is the challenge. And, and we bully and dominate our children because we have power over them, not because we believe in the values. If we believed in the values, we'd live the values of non-aggression, property rights, and keeping our word. And we'd have a stateless society and we'd have peaceful parenting if we actually lived our values rather than used values as a club by which the powerful browbeat and subjugate the less powerful. So um, I don't think we need some giant computer to tell us not to use violence and to respect property and to keep our word. I mean, everybody accepts that already. Um, and who's sane, right? I mean, so I don't think a computer is going to make people believe something that their own conscience is already telling them and which they're already inflicting on those they have power over. Right. No, I, I, I really, that's one of the things I really appreciate about your show is that you, you deal with um, really, you know, um, they're abstract, but it, it really comes down to like um, practical applications of, of philosophy and of ethics and, and how we should basically be living our lives. And I think that's definitely one of the roots of philosophy is, is figuring out how we should be, you know, living our lives and pursuing a, a happy end. Um, and, you know, I really respect you and your show for that. It's, it's wonderful. Um, but this sort of thing, I, I, I dabble in studying artificial intelligence because I do think it's going to have a, 
a massive impact on our lives. And, and in terms of practicality, I, I think there's going to be a, a divergence between humans, humans who, who basically reject the notion of an AI ruling them and humans who accept that um, in the same way that re, we as humans rule less intelligent species and AI, which is more intelligent than humans, will ultimately, I think, um, rule over humanity. I mean, and with that regard, I think that's how it would be a, sort of a practical application of um, the discussion of AI. Wait, the, the practical application is that advanced, like a super advanced intelligence, which we can't possibly resist, is going to rule over us at some point in the future. You think that's an actionable thing to focus on? Um, I, I, I think it's actionable in the sense of, of discussing with people and reconciling um, the this idea that um, that I think that there is a very high potential of this happening and, and kind of... Um, what, you think it's, there's a high potential of a superintelligence turning us into a human zoo? Uh, yes. <laughs> yeah. What, okay, give me a time frame. Give me a probability. I'm just, you know, let's, let's put it out there. I mean, I would say 10 to 15 years from now. 10 to 15 years? Yeah. Holy shit. So 10 to 15 years, a superintelligence manufactured by the army, which can't seem to buy a hammer for less than $500, is going to take us over? Is that your theory? Yeah, if they have, if it hasn't already, if it, if it does, if it if if it hasn't, you, you, already, yeah. you're not are you, like, are you kidding with me? I, I'm not kidding. I, I swear, I'm not kidding with you. I, I, I mean, that's you know my my reason for. Oh this. my god, dude, <laughs> take this belief out back and put a fucking bullet through its head. Holy shit! What the hell is going on with your life? Where's your motivation? Where's your planning? Where's your what you're gonna get in life if you're like ten to fifteen years from being a rat in a cage? What the hell have you got to plan for? What have you got to look forward to? I mean, that's definitely something I, I, I struggle with in my life and in, in, in finding motivation. Don't struggle with I mean, it. No, I don't struggle with it because I, I, I in my Calculators mind, are not going to take you over. This is not a Transformers movie. It's not going to happen. Put like Take that belief out back and park a truck on its head until it squirts like a watermelon dropped from a, the top of the David Letterman building. Take that fantasy out at, like, holy shit, of the things to worry about in this life. I don't... An excess of military intelligence is not one of them. <laughs> <laughs> too many brains coming out of the state too much super advanced technology coming out of government programs no they can't build a plane that doesn't crash at the moment i think we're okay they can't stabilize iraq they can't ever come in under budget yeah i mean i um it, 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 it's it, it's and you said you don't struggle, and I and I accept that I shouldn't be struggling with this. Um, so that's why, and that's why I, I kind of frame the question. No, struggle with it, okay. but don't struggle with it like it's <laughs> something that's going to happen. Struggle with it like somebody with OCD struggles not to wash their hands. This is a life destroying thought. It is the enemy of everything that you can achieve that is good and glorious and noble and heroic in your life. Because if you genuinely believe you're living in these end times, your spine is deflating like a cat playing with a helium balloon. Gone. We need you up here. We need you out here on the barricades helping us fight the bad guys. Oh, we don't I need you want, not wanting to get out of bed because your toaster is going to rule your day. I mean, I'm definitely still motivated to, to, um, to, to talking to people openly in regards to the ethics that I believe in, that I follow you and watch every one of your videos, and I firmly agree with everything yeah. that you have to say. So it's, it's This not that belief I'm... has an effect on your life, seriously. It, it if does. it doesn't have an effect on your life, then let's stop having this conversation because it doesn't matter. It doesn't. If it does matter, then it's going to have an effect on your life. I, I think the effect it's having is that I'm pursuing information technologies and, and learning about it. Um, 
I, I, I don't, I can't logically see any way that an AI in the future doesn't have, won't have an impact on our lives. Like it doesn't. <laughs> How? But you don't even know computers that well. I, I feel like I understand a little bit to, to, to at least have some reason to believe that an AI, if it doesn't already exist, it will exist. I mean, I, I follow a lot of people and listen to a lot of research in this thing. And, you know, there's, there's a lot of really oh, smart people than me saying that, AI is going to exist. In I'm, I'm going to go out on a limb here. Do you mind? Yeah. Big, 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 creaky limb okay. with only, I mean, I've had some, I've been working with computers for almost 40 years now. Okay. A lot of people in the world say a lot of stupid shit, my friend. And a lot of them have PhDs and they're still batshit crazy. And a lot of them are successful entrepreneurs and they're still batshit crazy. There are a lot of people who are emotionally disturbed, who are out there, who enjoy the sadism of fear mongering, who get well paid by people who have certain fears for enhancing those fears. They used to be called priests. Now they're called tech gurus. Right. So a lot of people out there saying a lot of stupid shit in this world. And the idea that we're imminently close to some kind of artificial intelligence Human beings don't even know how our brain works. How the hell are we supposed to reproduce it in an overgrown calculator? A lot of people out there will say a lot of stupid shit. And they, a lot of people out there will, will love to get your attention by scaring the living crap out of you. Now, I'm aware I've put out some videos that can be kind of scary for people, but I'm trying to give people actionable information based on empirical trends. Now, the idea that we can somehow recreate an intelligence that we don't have any idea how it works. So you go to any brain researcher, they will say, we have no idea how the brain works. We have no idea how the brain works. They barely even know what you can break in the brain and still have things work. Like they can, they've had people who've had iron spikes go through their head and their brain has just shifted functioning to somewhere else. Right, neuroplasticity, uh, the fact that the brain can reform itself, the fact that the brain can shift processing, the fact that if you lose one sense, other senses get sharpened, all of this sort of stuff. Nobody has any clue how the brain works. And so we know how the body works, so I believe that you're going to get robots that can walk, and there are robots that can climb stairs, and there are robots that can balance trays of bubbly. And right, So we know how the, uh, the arm works, so we can reproduce that in robot form. But in order to be able to recreate human intelligence in computer form, we'd have to have some freaking clue how human intelligence works. And we don't. Nobody knows. And anybody who claims that artificial intelligence is imminent must know that human intelligence is being recreated in computer form, which means not only that it can be, but they also know exactly how human intelligence works as well. And there's nobody alive who can say they know to any degree of specificity or reproducibility, how human intelligence works. So the idea that it's going to somehow be replicated, something we have no clue how it works can be recreated, recreated in some completely incompatible format like a computer. Anybody who says that they have any idea of time frame, in my humble opinion, is talking so entirely out of their ass, I'm surprised their lips aren't brown. And I mean, I could be wrong, so I don't, you know... It's just it's just what I think, and you know, and, maybe, and like I said, I could be like I I, I very well could be wrong. Um, I just uh, given the the research I've done, and I could be listening to the wrong people, but that's that's kind of the conclusion I've I've come to. And I, I don't when um, listen it, listen. I'm not let, scared let, of it. That's the thing. This is testable. This is testable. 
can we have a computer that has the intelligence of a three-year-old human? Yes. No. There's, I mean, I, I really, I don't. Absolutely not. You can have a creative conversation with a three-year-old human being. I know, I'm a father. There's no computer out there that can simulate accurately a three-year-old's conversation. So, for instance, I could say to my daughter when she was three, tell me a story. She'll tell me a story that she comes up with on her own. She could make up songs. She can tell me what she dreamt of last night. She can make up jokes. She can create associations on her own spontaneously. Like we have this game at the moment where if you can think of a word that sounds like another word, you win a point. And the more it sounds like another word, like homonyms, right? Like like a fair, right? A bus fair, a fair that you go to, uh, like a park. Uh, is, is it fair what's happening? Uh, fair as in um, uh, it's a nice weather. Fair as in pretty. Like so, if you can, so she does these spontaneously on her own, and we have conversations about stuff, and she asks me questions about her relationships and about my relationships, and right. So I've never even remotely heard of a computer that can accurately pass the Turing test for a three-year-old fucking child. So the idea we're going to get some super intelligence when they can't even get someone barely out of diapers on a computer? Come on. Uh, well. Gotta let it go. There's yeah. lots of things to be worried about in the world. Artificial intelligence is not one of them because it's not about to happen. Nobody can claim to program a computer to do what the human brain does because nobody knows what the hell the human brain does. You know, if you're, a, if you're a programmer, you need a spec sheet in order to program something. What's it supposed to do? There's no spec sheet. Right. I, I mean, I, I guess you could say the spec sheet would be like deconstructing the human brain. But again, like if, if no one knows how the brain works, and I don't know, I certainly don't know how the brain works, so I can't, I can't make the position that other people do if I don't even know how. Um, and if they're claiming to, they could be wrong. So, um, Okay, so you just posted something from technology from bbc.com. Intelligent machines, AI had IQ of four-year-old child. Okay, so if you ask questions, then it can create responses. But that's not what I'm talking about. What I was talking about with my daughter when she was three was the spontaneous things that she was coming up with on her own. Right, so where can you find a penguin? Yes, you can program uh, a computer to answer that. What is a house? Computer can answer that. Um, and uh, you can, so you can find a computer can create pattern, you can program it for pattern recognition, you can build in a whole bunch of stuff and so on. It cannot spontaneously generate and create things on its own. Everything that a computer does is deterministic. I mean, you can randomize some stuff or whatever, but it is fundamentally deterministic. And um, so I get that you can have particular tests that would be specific to can you provide specific output to specific input. That's what computers are good at. Right, it's But the idea that it's going to have a dream and spontaneously come up with, with things on its own and, and engage you in conversation, that's not, it's not how it's going to work. I understand. And I, listen, I'm absolutely sure of this. Doesn't mean I can prove it. Right. Yeah, I mean, I can't either. So that's what's, what's, it's, you know, it's, I think that's kind of where it falls in the realm of philosophy is because it's, it's one of, um, it's open for debate. Um, and. You know, that's, that's, 
that's what that's particularly why I wanted to to engage you in this topic is because I wanted to to talk with someone with um, the intelligence of, of yourself who can, who can help me um, kind of deconstruct my thought process and where I might be wrong. Um, and and certainly you've helped me do so and and to to find a motivation beyond um, seeing this uh, AI take over the world in like fifteen years or so and and focus more on the practical applications of philosophy um, more so than the abstract what ifs. Yeah, there are very real risks that we are facing as a society, incompatible cultures, social disintegration based upon um, incompatible uh, ethnicities and cultures, uh, and fiat currency, and uh, and so on. Those are or the, the fact that children are being drugged a hell of a lot with these mind-altering substances and so on, spanking, um, marital relations, personal virtues, integrity. There are so many challenges that are immediate in our life that I'm just focusing on this to me just seems incredibly self-indulgent and it allows you to talk about stuff that isn't going to really annoy people that much and right now we need to be in the business of really annoying the shit out of people like right now is gadfly time right now is get in people's faces and and use whatever means necessary to break the hypnosis of these cliff walking sleepwalkers Right. Everybody's they're hypnotized by the media. They're hypnotized by art. They're hypnotized by music. They're hypnotized by academia. They're just hypnotized. They are not thinking. They are automatons. Maybe they're tired. uh, Maybe they're consuming, as a lot of people do, four hours of programming every night. Right. TV is fundamentally programming. And whatever we can do to break this spell, to, to, to break up this hypnosis. The, the air horn of annoyance that philosophy has to become, that is what we need to do. And this is why the job left too late becomes more difficult. Right? It's one thing to prevent something from falling over. It's another thing to hold it up while it's actually falling. The job left too late becomes onerous. If you don't get your teeth fixed long enough, for long enough, you will lose them. Right? If you don't exercise and eat poorly for too long, your health will be permanently compromised. You will get diabetes or something which you can't undo after a certain point. So the longer you leave a problem, the harder it is to solve. And this is something we used to talk about in the software field. If we don't have enough time to fix it in the planning stages, what the hell makes anyone think we'll have time to fix it in the execution stage? But it's much later. You cannot build the airplane wing when it's already (laughs) leaving the runway. It's too late. Yeah. And so right now, things have been left really, 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 really late. And that means that waking up is harder for people. It's harder for people. You know, if if there's a plane that's going to crash and you know half an hour ahead of time, okay, you can get people prepared. However, if you have 45 seconds, it's different, right? <laughs> right. And so we have to annoy the shit out of people to wake them up because there's no gentle waking with this imminent a set of problems and disastrous interfaces. You cannot wake a child gently if there's a rattlesnake coming into the tent. You cannot... Gently coax a child to move if they're in the path of an oncoming truck. 
it's late and it's late because people have been numbed, made fearful, made resentful, made dependent. But it is really, really late in the game right now. It's later than I thought it was, and I thought it was pretty damn late. But the events of the last year or two have really accelerated how late it is waking people up. Because now now they have the sin and guilt of cowardice, which means that waking up people is waking them up to their own cowardice now. And they don't want to wake up. Literally, people will often choose death over waking up. You can see this with military matters. And people will choose to be drafted rather than think for themselves. People will choose death over waking up for reasons I've gone into, for sexual market value, reproductive reasons I've gone into before. And so it is really now that we must be in the time of waking the fetful sleepers with the air horns, with the airstrikes if necessary, the mental airstrikes. And so people wonder, like, I mean, I, I do this show and we keep making friends and breaking friends, <laughs> naturally, because people are attracted to something that they sympathize with or is in accordance with some prior belief, maybe even prejudice that they hold. And then we consistently push on with the principles. And at some point, it goes from a cuddle to high voltage through their skeletal system. A place which they thought was a safe harbor where they could reinforce their particular prejudices turns into a place of combative and electrifying integrity. There's no point bringing people into philosophy because of things that they like. That's like saying, I'm going to be a dietitian and you can eat all the food you already love. Well, the fact that my tongue loves it means that I don't need a dietitian. I just need to follow my tongue. The whole point of philosophy is to put people's faces into the cheese crater of stuff they hate. I'm sorry. It's just the way that it is. It's just the way that it is. Philosophy is not there to make you feel better. Philosophy is not there to reinforce your prejudices. Philosophy is not there to cuddle up to your bigotries, or mine, or anyone's. Philosophy is there to annoy the living shit out of you by pointing out how inconsistently you live. Philosophy was described as a gadfly, but it's the kind of gadfly <laughs> that can give you malaria, so to speak, right? It is, it is not there to be gentle and to be calm. You know this idea that philosophy, while you're floating, you're a guru, you're at peace with the world, <sighs> dust in the wind, man. That is not philosophy. Philosophy is an in-your-face, screeching, sergeant-major bully of integrity. And it has to be now, sadly, because the time for brushing teeth is gone. Now we have to drill, baby, drill. You know, the time for prevention is past. Now there is only the radical cure of massive sky-shattering integrity visible to everyone that makes people enthusiastic to try and reclaim their lives by turning away from their sleepwalk off the cliff. Because civilization is currently sleepwalking off a cliff. Momentum, political correctness, fear of racism, fear of sexism, fear of misogyny, fear of anything that might be worth defending in Western culture. We are sleepwalking off a cliff. And it's not even the fiery end of a volcano. It's just a sad, pitiful, little subjugated future of shame, cowering nothingness. Of paying tributes to those we used to rule. And so now is not the time for niceties. Doesn't mean you've got to spend your whole life screaming at people. I fully understand that. It's an exhausting business. Not everyone is paid for it the way I am, so I get it. 
right? Don't kid yourself. If you're not annoying people, you're not doing any good. If nobody hates you, you're not doing any good. If nobody has a problem with you, you're not doing any good. And if you're not doing any good, you're just joining the zombie tribe, marching into the future, which is less than nothing. So that's my major concern. I just wanted to share that. All right. I just wanted to say thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Thank you. I appreciate everyone. Uh, thank you so much. The lovers, the haters, the in-betweeners. Uh, go to one side or the other. It's more fun that way. And uh, freedomainradio.com slash donate to help out the show. Yo and low in these lean times of the January post-Christmas winter paucity of donation planet. It's really helpful and essential uh, if you could help us out at freedomainradio.com slash donate. FDRURL.com slash Amazon. If you're going to do some shopping, that's the place to go. It doesn't cost you anything. helps us out a little bit. Thank you, thank you, thank you, everyone, so much. It is a great pleasure, as always, to share the depths of thoughts and complexities of life and thought with the planet forever. This is going to be around forever. And I thank you so much, everyone who's making this possible. Have yourself a wonderful night. We'll talk to you soon.